Welcome to the Falk Salem Podcast. Each month we'll bring you a mix of operational announcements and clinical pieces to keep you up to speed. Through our monthly podcasts, our goal is to put the tools and education right in the palm of your hand. By keeping you up to date, we hope that we can empower you to continue bringing exceptional medical care to the city of Salem and beyond. Any and all material we release has been edited to comply with HIPAA standards. Greetings, hello, and welcome to this month of April 2021 and the Falk Salem podcast. My name is Cole Van Epps, and I'm a paramedic field training officer with uh, Falk Ambulance here in Salem, together with my partners, Dustin Pearson and Bianca Paul. We are so proud to be able to bring you this uh, training supplement every single month where we try to focus on clinical education and clinical pieces that will expand your medical knowledge and make you all better uh, clinical practitioners in the field. This month, as per usual, I'm super excited for the content that we've put together and developed here for you, and I really hope you also find some value in listening to us uh, talk about emergency medical services and medical topics. This month, to start, we're going to be launching into part three of our focus on cardiac emergencies, and this is brought to us by Bianca, who put together this next segment on STEMI imposters. The next section that we have is a brand new topic for us here where we'll be presenting some case reviews with our own Dr. Clothier. This month's topic was, when was he last seen normal? And it's up to you to decide if we're talking about Dr. Clothier or something else. Our third segment here is our employee spotlight where we are absolutely honored to bring you one of the most fascinating employees that we have here with us. His name is Carl and I Bet dollars to donuts that you'll probably find his career as fascinating as anyone. Following that, we have a focused topic on pulmonary trauma and trauma associated with the lungs. Next, we have our safety and wellness topic here, focusing on the pros and cons of caffeine and energy drinks. And our final topic for this particular month is our spotlight medication, focusing on non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, as well as Tylenol, and the comparison between the two, as well as potential overdoses of them. So again, welcome to this, the Falk Salem podcast. I am absolutely thrilled that you're here with us, and I can't wait to see what this future brings in the rest of 2021. Before we begin, we do have one very special announcement that we would like to make, and that is to celebrate the promotion of our own Bianca Paul, who applied and was promoted to what is going to be our new position, which is the Clinical Operations Supervisor. She is going to be in charge of delivering education to our crews and developing protocols and liaisoning with the local hospitals. Uh, She's going to be working hand-in-hand with our clinical manager to help make this a better place to be and a better place to work and to drive our clinical acumen to levels that we haven't seen. And she is absolutely the best person that we could have hoped for to get into this sort of a position. She has an incredible resume. She's a great empathetic uh, paramedic, and she's a great, uh, amazing educator, as you know, if you've been listening to our podcasts. So we wanted to say congratulations 
way to go. Um, if you know Bianca or if you're thinking about her, send her a digital high five or you know, give her some words of encouragement. But this is an amazing opportunity and such a, uh, a well-deserved promotion. You'll still hear her here on the Falk Salem podcast as well, and you'll see kind of what uh, I'm ranting and raving about here. So any way you cut it, this is a huge win for us here at Falk Salem Operations to have such a talented individual here working hard for us. So once again, congratulations, Bianca. We are so proud of you. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the third installment of Cardiology. This week, we will be talking about axis deviation and STEMIs and STEMI imposters. So far, we've talked about the basics of cardiology and what a STEMI actually is. This segment will be our catch-all portion, where I'll talk about all the fine details of cardiac events that could contribute to our patient's overall care. Before we get too deep into imposters, let's take a step back and discuss what axis deviation is and why it's so important in diagnosing the rhythm seen on the EKG. As you may remember from the first segment, the electrical activity in the heart starts at the sioatrial node or the SA node and then spreads into the atrioventricular node or AV node. From there, the electrical activity will spread down the bundle of his, deviate into the left and right bundle branches, and then the Purkinje fibers that will cause the ventricles to contract. Whenever the direction of electrical activity is towards a lead, then the EKG will show a positive deflection in that lead. Whenever the direction of electrical activity is away from the lead, then the EKG shows a negative deflection on that lead. Due to this, the cardiac axis gives us an idea of the overall direction of the electrical activity. The cardiac axis is depicted as a diagram where lead one is zero degrees and positive 180 degrees. AVR is at a positive 30 degrees and a negative 150 degrees. Lead two is at a positive 60 degrees and a negative 120 degrees. AVF is at a positive 90 degrees and a minus 90 degrees. Lead three is a positive 120 degrees and a negative 60 degrees. And lastly, AVL is a positive 150 degrees and a negative 30 degrees. I hope you guys looked up that chart like I told you last time. In most individuals, the axis lies between negative 30 degrees and positive 90 degrees. <coughs> This is a result because of the overall direction of electrical activity goes towards leads one, two, and three. As a result, there will be a positive deflection in all of these leads with lead two showing the most positive deflection since it's most closely aligned with the overall direction of the electrical activity. Because of this, the most negative deflection would be an AVR because AVR is looking at the heart in the opposite direction. When looking at axis deviation, sometimes it can be easier to think about it with your thumbs. Consider your left thumb as lead one and your right thumb as AVF. If both thumbs are up, then the axis is normal. Now, right axis deviation, or RAD, 
is when the direction of depolarization is being distorted to the right. This is at a positive 90 degrees and positive 180 degrees. The extra right ventricular tissue results in a stronger electrical signal being generated by the right side of the heart. This causes the deflection in lead one to become negative and the deflection in lead AVF and lead three to be more positive. This is known as a posterior hemiblock. In this occurrence, if the left thumb is down, which is lead one, and your right thumb is up, which is AVF, then there's a right axis deviation. Common causes of RAD are right ventricular hypertrophy and pulmonary hypertension, otherwise known as PE. Other reasons for RAD may be chronic lung diseases, such as COPD, hyper-K, sodium channel blocker toxicity, and one of my favorites, WPW. Interestingly enough, it can be a normal finding in very tall individuals. I wouldn't know that, but for you tall people out there, you might have a little bit of deviation. In left axis deviation, also known as LAD, the direction of depolarization is being distorted to the left. This is between negative 30 degrees and negative 90 degrees. This results in the deflection of lead three becoming negative. This is considered significant if the deflection in lead two also becomes negative. This is known as an anterior hemiblock. Now in this occurrence with the thumb rule, the left thumb, which is lead one, and the right thumb, which is ABF, is down. And then there's a left axis deviation. Common reasons why there may be LAD is because of an old inferior MI, ventricular ectopy, pace rhythms, left ventricular hypertrophy, of course WPW, and a left bundle branch block. The last category of axis deviation is extreme right axis. <clears throat> this means that the QRS complex in leads one, two, and three are all deflected down. I'm very sure each one of you have seen this extreme right axis deviation because it's most commonly ventricular tachycardia or SVT with aberrancy. So let's take a step back. What's the difference between VTAC and SVT with aberrancy? SVT means supraventricular tachycardia. This means that the rate is above 150 or 220 minus the age in pediatrics. SVT, AV nodal reentry tachycardia. This means that the reentrant system is in or around the AV node. This can be treated with vagal maneuvers or adenosine. So what does aberrancy mean? Aberrancy is an abnormal conduction. <clears throat> People who have a right bundle branch block tend to have a slightly longer refractory period than the left bundle branch block. This means that at a higher rate, the right bundle branch may not have fully recovered from the previous cardiac cycle and can show as SVT with aberrancy. This SVT can result in a wide complex tachycardia. VTAC is caused by the ventricles beating too fast to pump blood well, and the body doesn't receive enough oxygenated blood. VTAC will also be a wide complex on the EKG that has an extreme right axis deviation. About 80% of all wide complex tachycardias are VTAC. 
If the rate is greater than 120 beats per minute and the QRS complex is over 0.12, then it's most likely VTAC as well. Other factors to consider is if a patient's older. The older the patient is, the more likely it's also VTAC. Next, is the distance between the QRS complex and the S wave greater than 0.10? If it meets Brigada's assessment, then it's VTAC. Also, keep on the lookout for Josephson's sign, which is a notching in the S wave. All right, we've just discussed the first STEMI imposter, SVT with aberrancy. Jumping on the axis deviation train, the next imposter would be the bundle branch block. A bundle branch block is when there's a partial or full conduction block in one of the bundle branches. When a block exists, the ventricles fire more slowly as the impulse has to travel through cell to cell and then the muscle wall instead of through the conduction system. Bundles will have a wide QRS complex of over 0.12. The ventricular depolarization is facilitated by the heart's electrical conduction system, which is the Hiss-Purkinje system. There are three main fascicles or branches. There's a single branch to the right ventricle, known as the right bundle branch. There are two branches in the left ventricle, the left anterior fascicle and the left posterior fascicle of the left bundle branch. Common causes for bundle branch block can be ischemic events, myocardial infarctions, deterioration from age, prescription medication, recreational drugs, and electrical imbalances. Be aware that if the QRS complex is over 0.17, then the injection fracture is at almost 50%. This means that your patient has a poor cardiac output. When there's a wide QRS complex, this can falsely elevate the J point, making it look like a STEMI. This is why it's called a STEMI imposter. In a right bundle branch block, there's a slowing in the ventricular depolarization. The left and right ventricles fire out of phase. This leads to a rabbit ear looking QRS complex because the monitor is combining the QRS spike from the right ventricle and the left ventricle. This is also seen as a positive deflection in V1. A common analogy for the bundle branch blocks is the turn signal on your car. When you want to signal right on your car, you flip the turn signal up. An upward deflection in V1 is like the turn signal. In a left bundle branch block, the general direction of the current in the heart moves away from V1. That will cause a negative deflection. This is because there's either a delay or partial obstruction or full obstruction along the pathway that electrical impulses travel to get to the left ventricle. If using the turn signal, then turning left in your car means that you push down on the turn signal. This will be a negative deflection in V1, signaling a left bundle branch block. In a bivascular block, it involves a conduction delay between the atrioventricular node and two of the three vascles. That means that the conduction to the ventricles 
is via the single remaining fascicle. When we have a right bundle branch block with either a left anterior fascicular block or a left posterior fascular block, we call it a bifascular block. Since there's only one branch remaining in the patient, they're at risk for a complete heart block. A complete heart block, which is a disassociation between the P waves and the QRS complex, is when all three bundles are blocked. So, how do you identify a STEMI in the presence of a left bundle branch block? There are many who argue that you shouldn't diagnose a STEMI in the presence of a bundle branch block. Fine. Instead of arguing with one or another, let's just say that there might be some ways to raise your suspicion that your patient may be having an acute MI in the presence of a bundle branch block. The most common method for identifying the possible MI would be using the Scarbosa criteria. Dr. Elena Scarbosa proposed a set of rules in 1996 to help identify an acute myocardial infarction in the presence of a left bundle branch block. The most recent modification of the criteria looks at three factors. First, is there over one millimeter of concordant ST elevation in one lead? Second, is there over one millimeter of concordant ST depression in one lead of V1, V2, or V3? Third, is there a proportionally excessive discordant ST elevation in one lead anywhere over one millimeter. This is also defined as greater than 25% of the depth of the preceding S wave. If this is present, then there may be a high indication that the patient may be having an acute MI. The next STEMI imposter that we have is the left ventricular hypertrophy, otherwise known as LVH. LVH is one of the most common causes of ST segment elevation in chest pain patients. It's an increase in the mass to the left ventricle, usually due to chronic hypertension. As the heart beats continuously against a higher diastolic afterload, cardiac tissue surrounding the left ventricle grows, stealing space and thus volume from its ventricle. As the left ventricle loses its ability to move blood, the pump backs into the left atria and then into the lungs. Many of our CHF patients will demonstrate the signature QRS pattern of LVH. The most common criteria for LVH diagnoses were established in 1949. You take the largest negative deflection from the isoelectric line of V1 and V2, which is usually the S wave, whichever is larger, and count the small boxes. Then take the largest positive deflection of V5 or V6, which is the R wave, and whichever is larger, add it to the total of V1 or V2. If the result is greater than 35 millimeters, then your suspicion for LVH should be high. Left ventricular hypertrophy induces changes in the depolarization and repolarization of the heart that alter the resting EKG. These changes include winding of the QRS duration, 
an increase in the QRS amplitude, and secondary changes in the ST segment and T waves. Typically, there is an ST segment depression and T wave inversion in the lateral leads and ST segment elevation in the precordial leads of V1 through V3. The STT changes secondary to LVH interfere with the EKG interpretation and may affect their accuracy in diagnosing STEMIs and other forms of active ischemia. Because of this, LVH will have a falsely elevated segment that may accidentally be interpreted as a STEMI. The next STEMI imposter on our list is pericarditis. The pericardial sac is attached to the diaphragm, sternum, and costal cartilage. It's designed not only to minimize friction for the constantly active heart, but also to create a barrier for infection that might be transferred from other surrounding organs. Like all structures, however, the sac is an imperfect solution. Pericarditis, or inflammation of the sac, is one of the leading causes of effusion to the pericardial space. Common reasons for pericarditis are end-stage renal disease, lupus, cardiac surgery, trauma, HIV, and acute MIs. A patient may present as febrile or complaining of a sharp or stabbing chest pain that may change with movement or inspiration. And it may radiate into a classically cardiac way to the left arm and to the neck. Supine positioning may increase pain while leaning forward alleviates the pain. When looking at the EKG for pericarditis, there will be elevation across multiple leads. The ST elevation, which may be in every lead but AVR and V1, will usually be concave like ST elevation and LVH. A notched J point, which gives the ST segment the appearance of a fish hook laying on its back, is often present in this concave elevation. If you look to the PR segment, there'll be depression in the leads with ST elevation. The next STEMI imposter, and my favorite, is benign early repolarization, also known as BRRRR. It's usually benign EKG pattern producing widespread ST segment elevation that is commonly seen in young, healthy patients under the age of 50. Also known as a high takeoff or J-point elevation, it may mimic pericarditis or acute MIs. With a J-point, there will be an upward concavity to the ST segment. This is known as a smiley-shaped ST elevation because the curve looks like it has a smiley face. The physiological basis of Burr is poorly understood. It's generally thought to be a normal variant that's not indicative of underlying cardiac disease. But recently, a link has been made between a global Burr pattern and a future risk for idiopathic ventricular fibrillation. This link was made in the New England Journal of Medicine by Michael Hisauger and his associates. When looking at the EKG, there will be right widespread concave ST elevation 
and it's mostly seen in the mid to left precordial leads or leads V2 through V5. There will be a notching or slurring at the J point. You may also notice slightly asymmetrical T waves that are concordant with the QRS complex. The T wave height ratio to the V6 is elevated, which in conjunction with the fishhook morphology can lead to a false ST elevation. The last damning posture that I'd like to talk about today is paced rhythms, specifically paced ventricular rhythms. In a paced ventricular rhythm, there will be a wide dramatic rhythm following the spike of a pacemaker. Repolarization pathways are different in the cardiac tissue of these patients. ST morphologies are also varied. You will notice a pacer spike before the pacemaker fires. This will slow as a large wide complex on the EKG. Due to the wide complex, there will be false ST elevations throughout the 12 lead. The ST segments and the T waves will be discordant with the QRS complex. The key to this is to find the pacer spikes, which can normally be seen on lead two. Patients will receive a ventricular pacemaker if they have chronic atrial impairment, such as AFib or a flutter. I'd like to finish this segment by talking a little bit about NSTEMIs. Non-ST segment elevation myocardial infarction is a type of heart attack caused by the blockage, partial blockage, of a major coronary artery or a blockage of a minor artery. NSTEMIs rarely leads to a STEMI because they have different mechanisms of action. An NSTEMI is more likely in people with diffuse coronary disease who often have collateral vessel development. People with a STEMI are less likely to have that sort of diffuse disease or collateral vessel development. Myocardial ischemia results from decreased myocardial oxygen supply and increased demand. In the majority of cases, NSTEMI is due to a sudden decrease in blood, supp blood supply via partial occlusion of the affected vessel. In some cases, markedly increased myocardial oxygen demand may lead to an NSTEMI or demand ischemia as seen in severe anemia, hypertensive crisis, acute decompensated heart failure, surgery, or any other significant physiological stressor. A UA NSTEMI most often presents severe coronary artery narrowing or acute arthrosclerotic plaque rupture or erosion and superimposed thrombosis formation. Alternatively, it may also be due to progressive mechanical obstruction from advancing arthrosclerotic disease or bypass graft disease. Plaque rupture may be triggered by local and systemic inflammation as well as, well as shear stress. Rupture allows for exposure of the lipid-rich subenthelial components of circulating platelets and inflammatory cells, serving as potent substrates for thrombus formation. A thin fibrous cap also known as a thin cap fibroalthurma, is felt more vulnerable to rupture and is more frequently represented as only a moderate stenosis on angioplasty. Less common causes include dynamic obstruction of the coronary artery due to a vasospasm, like from cocaine, 
coronary artery dissection, which is more common women, coronary vasculitis, and embolus. On the EKG, findings suggestive of an NSTEMI include transient ST elevation, ST depression, or new T-wave inversions. <sighs> this was a big talk for today. The takeaway points I want each of you to have is that patients presenting with chest pain should be treated appropriately with oxygen as needed, aspirin if there are no contraindications, nitro if indicated, and additional pain medications such as fentanyl and morphine. You may do a 12 lead and see a STEMI imposter. The goal is to accurately identify the imposter and realize that it may present with false ST elevation. Your patient presentation should play a significant factor in how you treat your patient. Next month will be our final installment of the cardiology mini-series. We'll finish this up with learning about what happens after a patient is taken into the emergency department for chest pain. As always, stay safe everyone. For this month, we have a new section that we're going to try to hit uh, every month if we can, or try to do it as much as we can. Schedule some time to sit with uh, Dr. Clothier to offer some insight on case reviews and to look at how those cases affect us and kind of see overall what we can learn from the experiences of folks in the field. So thank you very much, Doc, for joining us here today. Thanks for the time, Cole. Sure. Can you help us to get to know you just a little bit before we get started? Oh, sure. I've uh, been here working in Salem EMS for over a decade, been in medicine for uh, 20 years-ish. And uh, anybody who's talked to me knows that I have a fondness for EMS. I think it's where the action happens. I think it's where we can make the fine adjustments that really affect a patient's outcome, which is why I think it's so exciting. So that's why I'm here. And you're an emergency physician? Correct. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. And how long have you been a medical director for? Uh, I've been doing it for 10 years. 10 years. And then as far as like your passion for emergency medicine, you mentioned that's kind of where the ball starts rolling. Um, has your passion always been emergency medicine? Has it always been you know, the initial stabilization of patients, resuscitation of patients? When I went to medical school, my plan was to do orthopedics because I like fixing things and working with tools. But I came through my medical training and realized that I liked all fields of medicine, but I only liked the interesting parts of them. And I found that uh, those interesting parts most often happened in the emergency room. Gotcha. Outside of emergency medicine, do you have any focuses or things that you specialize in or that really pique your interest the most? Uh, I spend a lot of time doing continuing education and studying uh, EMS. I'm always looking for things that we can do in the field that are going to make just critical differences, just turning those little hinge points to get better outcomes for the patient. And then uh, I also trained as a pediatrician. Not everybody knows that. Uh, and that intent, the intent there was to uh, make sure that we were providing excellent care for children in the ER as well. Very interesting. Because I imagine as an ER physician, you're gonna, ha you have to be prepared to see anything at any point, just matters what's rolling through the door and who happened to stop at your facility. And pediatrics can be a pretty prominent part of that. Right. Um, I'm a parent, I'm just looking for the nearest hospital, take my kiddo on over there, which means as an ER doc, you gotta be prepared for everything. Transitioning just a bit, 
what do case reviews from like the hospital side from physician to physician or even case reviews look like at, at your level of medical practice? I think it's really difficult to practice medicine in a vacuum, uh, the, which is why I've always been an advocate for field personnel getting follow-up and feedback on every case that you guys uh, run in. Because otherwise, how are you going to know if you did the right thing? How are you going to know if you made the right decision? How are you going to know if you followed the right clinical pathway? So uh, particularly for a case review kind of situation, um, I think that the important thing is to take everything that we learn as we discuss protocols or different topics like trauma or cardiac arrest. The case review is an opportunity to go back and look at how well our protocol is working, how well we understood the things that we are uh, trying to push out, and then uh, we, we get the opportunity to make it better. I know in my experience at a previous agency, we adopted the, the format of once a quarter, we were doing an M&M or that morbidity mortality sort of presentation. And I got tapped one time to do a presentation about a call that I had run where I had to make a judgment call on it. And at first, you know, I didn't really understand the power or the amount of uh, education that could come from that until I presented this call where I had made a judgment call. Um, wasn't necessarily wrong or right. It was one of those gray areas where maybe there wasn't a good decision. I chose one path and in retrospect, I could have chose another. And it was very awesome when I presented that call in front of my peers and I talked to them about that when we did this case review, how many people had had similar experiences where they chose one path or another, but the whole group got to learn from that experience. And everybody suddenly was on the same page because we had people there discussing um, the consequences or kind of how things occurred and maybe how those decision processes happened. And we were able to make changes from a system point of view, a protocol point of view, and even just a personal understanding point of view by learning from that case and just how difficult it could be. And the new medics who were there, the older medics who were there, people who had perhaps seen that and already had formed an opinion, everybody got to have this perspective check on what happened there. I, I too find a heck of a lot of power that comes out of case review because it's really how we learn how to get better. The case that we wanted to focus on here today, uh, can you give me a brief overview of this case and to kind of set the stage for this? Sure, so this was a, a patient in his 50s who came from a facility. Uh, the crew was called to evaluate him for possible stroke. <laughs> and uh, then they brought him in here to see me. So I just kind of wanted to break down what that looked like and uh, what the key interventions were in that case. Sure. So we go on this call and this patient is exhibiting stroke symptoms. Uh, what kind of symptoms are we looking for? Uh, the concern that was raised was that of word salad. Is that a term that's familiar to uh, you, Cole, as you work in the field? I do like salads, uh, although word salad, though, is not one that I've tossed around in for a while. Uh, what does word salad mean to you? I saw what you did there. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, so word salad refers to just as you would mix a salad and you put all kinds of different things in there. Word salad is when a patient can articulate words correctly, but they don't put them together correctly. And so you wind up with a jumble of correctly pronounced words that don't mean anything. 
I always get these two terms wrong. Is that dysphagia or aphasia or dysarthria? So dys means you have difficulty doing it. A as a prefix means you can't do it at all. So the difference between dysrhythmia and arrhythmia, arrhythmia by definition is a systole, right? There's no rhythm at all versus dysrhythmia, which is where the, the rhythm is out of whack. So uh, phagia refers to their ability to pronounce the word. So dysphagia means they can't pronounce things correctly. If someone is aphasic, they can't speak at all. So this patient here has this word salad. They're mixing up their words. They're attempting to communicate, but it's probably very clear right off the bat. Hey, my name's Cole. I'm a paramedic. I'm here to help you. What can I do for you here today? They can't communicate at all. So immediately we're a GCS of uh, 13. If the patient is watching me and tracking me, they're attempting to move their parts of their body and follow commands, but they're using that confused inappropriate language that puts us at a GCS of 13 then on this patient. AONO times zero, but GCS 13. Right. Um, so for me, I would approach that by also then trying to confirm with the facility What's their normal baseline like? Does this patient have a previous problem with a stroke or maybe they this is their baseline and they're noticing something different? With the big caveat being, if the people who know this patient better than I say this is not typically what Bob does, Bob is always talking to me about whatever and he's able to communicate, that's a critical sign to me. That's a load and go kind of a scenario because time is tissue based on that one symptom. Um, was there any other symptoms or signs that came out during their exam that triggered anything? Nope, that was the only one they said is that they had uh, noticed that Bob, that's a made up <laughs> name, but uh, was not able to uh, speak normally. Understood, okay. Um, so when we're looking at that on our stroke criteria, um, that already triggers our stroke alert criteria based on this inability to speak. Um, but no facial droop at this time, no arm drift at this time. It's just that speech that's incongruent with their baseline. So we apply that towards our FAST exam. The other questions that we're trying to describe with this then are gonna be the time of onset. Was there any information that came about with the time of onset? Yeah, what they told me was that they had uh, discovered that Bob was abnormal, right? And then it, it called EMS immediately. Understood. Okay. So they were talking about this was a, uh, a short time frame that, you know, at least with the information that was passed along there at that time, we're kind of thinking, great, we're right on top of this. This happened here recently. Let's get them done. I think this is a good spot to highlight. Uh, the facility said we just discovered Bob this way, but the clear thinking medic who ran this call did not accept that answer because that answer doesn't really answer the, the question. So the medic went and pursued further and said, I understand that five minutes before you called 911, you saw Bob was abnormal. But my question for you is, when did you last see Bob acting normally? Ah, okay. So they call us for this problem. I pigeonhole on that and I take this as that's when it started. But by asking an additional question, I can see now maybe this started before and they haven't rounded on this person in a couple hours. That right. probably significantly changes our picture with that. 
Right. And, and there's a lot of uh, illnesses that are not as time dependent as this one is. But for stroke, we really have to base all of our decisions based on when the patient was last seen normal. And if you ask a caregiver, a loved one, a family member, hey, when did this start? They will always tell you when they discovered the patient abnormal. They'll say, well, it just happened. It just happened five minutes ago. You, you have to go and ask them more specific questions. Okay, well, where was Bob when this started? Well, he was in his bedroom. Okay, you walked into his bedroom and you saw him and what did he look like? Well, he looked like this. Okay, so five minutes before that, where was Bob? Well, he was still in bed in his bedroom. And was anyone with him? No. Okay, so you discovered Bob abnormal five minutes ago. When's the last time you saw Bob acting normally? The answer goes from five minutes to five hours or 12 hours or three days. So it's hard to know unless you ask. So based upon that, I, I think I see where we're angling now with this because just having a general understanding of what is our goal when we get them to the hospital, it's reperfusing the brain. It's helping to limit the development of that penumbra, right? The, the potentially ischemic tissue that hasn't quite infarcted yet, we're attempting to save that tissue with reoxygenation and our options on how we support that or diagnose it or even try to make those interventions they're incredibly time sensitive and they have their side effects to them that have to be mitigated. Judging by that conversation there, the difference between five minutes and having some breathing room versus five hours and having little to no breathing room, that's humongous. Right. That's the spirit of what we're saying by adding in those extra questions. Okay. So we take them to the hospital. We start a couple of IVs along the way because the old adage still uh, applies. Two is one, one is none. And we're definitely going to need an IV that's going to be able to support uh, a CT scan with contrast that can have some pressure behind it for that contrast delivery, at least a 20 gauge and a higher level uh, AC, uh, preferably so we can get that uh, that option on the table to get them scanned. Agreed. Yeah. Okay. And, and I want to break that down a little bit more too, because when you guys call what we previously called a neuro alert, and now we're transitioning to a new protocol and calling it a stroke alert, the very first step is to get that patient to CAT scan as soon as possible. But that first CAT scan does not have any contrast behind it. And the, the whole goal of that first dry CAT scan of the brain is to look for a hemorrhage and contrast and blood have a similar appearance on CT. So you do that first dry CT to see if there's any hemorrhage there. Because if that patient had a hemorrhage, then I'm off on a completely different trajectory, right? If they've had a hemorrhage, then I'm looking for a neurosurgeon. I'm doing aggressive blood pressure control because those hypertensive hemorrhages are often running 250 over 150 or something in that range. So I'm off to the races. And the last thing I'm going to do in that scenario is to give TPA or thrombolytics to try to break up a clot if the patient doesn't have one. I see. Okay. And in support of that blood pressure and keeping them like even kind of hypertensive, it's because we have to keep that brain perfusing and a critical drop in their blood pressure, a difference in that MAP score might spell doom for that patient. Uh, okay, we got to clarify that. So pathway number one is uh, your patient who's hemorrhaged. I'm dropping their blood pressure to try to decrease the amount of hemorrhage and the amount of pressure that's accumulating in their brain. Now, once we've crossed that off the list, 
with uh, that dry CT scan. They will then bring the patient back to the ER and that gives me the opportunity to go down my checklist and see if the patient's appropriate for TPA. As to your point, uh, patients who are having an ischemic stroke uh, will often auto-regulate, meaning that they will intuitively, uh, their physiology will be to increase their blood pressure to try to perfuse that ischemic penumbra that you referred to earlier. There, on that checklist for giving TPA though, there are parameters for what their blood pressure has to be. So those uh, folks sometimes will get a little bit of medication to lower their blood pressure, some, uh, you know, a beta blocker or something of that nature to bring their blood pressure down. Okay. So then I've got a window of time, sooner is better, uh, under three hours is better. I can go up to four and a half hours under certain circumstances, but I have to decide if that patient's gonna get TPA and that I've got to give that as soon as possible. So a patient comes back to the ER after that scan and I make that yes or no decision, am I given TPA? Following that, we go back to CAT scan and we go back to CAT scan to do that contrasted study you were talking about. I'm doing a CT angiogram of their uh, head and neck vessels. And basically I'm looking for an LVO or a large vessel occlusion. I'm looking for a stumped off blood vessel with a clot in it. And if I find one, then we're off on another pathway, right? Because once I find somebody with a large vessel that's got a blockage in it, I have to get them someplace where we can get that vessel cleared to restore blood flow to the brain. And in our area, there's a facility down in Eugene and a couple of facilities in Portland that do that. Interventional radi radiology for a thrombectomy? Correct. Interventional neurology. Oh, okay. And that's very similar to kind of the the technology involved with how they stent hearts or how they have been affecting uh, cardiac disease processes. The technology has improved so much to be able to apply that same intravascular therapy towards these uh, areas with the clots and towards busting them up or sucking them out or removing them or stenting them or doing things like that. Correct. We're mimicking what we did for cardiovascular care 20 or 30 years ago. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Now, as a medic coming into the hospital, I'm bringing this patient. I've called ahead and said, I've got Bob. He's sick. Bringing him on into the hospital. These are my uh, criteria. I've got the word salad. I have this time of onset and last seen normal contrasting time frames there. I also need a good blood glucose level to help support the stroke alert. What kind of a handoff report should we be giving? Um, what's a good way to prioritize the information so that you get what you need more efficiently? You know, it could almost be a, as simple as, this is Bob, I'm worried he's having a stroke because I see the following findings and his last seen normal time was 1530, boom, done. I will add, I need to know whether or not Bob's taking an anticoagulant because if he's on Pradaxa, uh, then I can't give him TPA. So those so, immediately yeah. check the box and make the decision right or left on what are our options with him, regardless of what the CT findings say. Right. So gotcha. I think this point, I think this case was interesting because the crew who brought Bob in was very busy. And so I saw them again, oh, I don't know, 30 minutes later or so. And they said, what did the CAT scan show? And I said, nothing. That first CAT scan didn't show a hemorrhage. It was a completely normal scan. 
Hmm. And they said, oh, well, that's weird. And I said, well, we're not done yet. And then I saw them, I don't know, 30, 40, whatever minutes later. And they said, well, what did your next CAT scan show? And I said, nothing. And they said, are you trying to tell me Bob didn't have a stroke? And I said, no, what I'm trying to tell you is CAT scan number one, Bob didn't have a hemorrhage. CAT scan number two, Bob did not have a large vessel occlusion. So the third test and the one that will give us much more definitive information, because my first two scans are not to check if Bob had a stroke. The first scan is to look for the hemorrhage. The second scan is to look for an obstruction in a blood vessel. The third scan is the MRI. And that is the one that will actually show me whether or not I have ischemic brain tissue. Gotcha. That's a lot. That's a lot of time between all of that. And that MRI is a pretty long scan, isn't it? Uh, it's longer than the CAT scan for sure. Gotcha. Yeah, CAT, CAT scan, we can roll them through in a couple of minutes. The MRI, you're looking at more like a 15, 20 minute process. 15, 20 minutes. That done. And we have fewer MRIs and MRI is often busy. So uh, for me to get the patient to MRI emergently is not an effective strategy. So most stroke centers uh, will follow a similar algorithm to the one I just laid out for you, where you get two CAT scans to start. Now, in Bob's case, his last scene, his discovered abnormal time was 20 minutes before I met him. His last seen normal time was eight hours prior. So I knew right off the top, I can't give Bob TPA because it's been too long since he was seen acting normally. So in this case, I sent Bob off to CAT scan and I did CAT scan one and CAT scan two back to back. The crew asked me about it after the after I had the read back on the first one, but still not the second one. Gotcha. And that shortens up some of that time frame because now you're probably also warming up the phone to you know contact those interventional neurologists and say, I've got a patient who could use uh, a priority service from you. Uh, you might be able to start getting that ball rolling a lot faster versus exploring your other options first. It might get Bob you know, uh, down the road quicker towards definitive care. Right. Gotcha. Okay. Well, it sounds to me like to highlight the pearls of wisdom then about what we're going to learn from this case or what hopefully what we have learned from this case, um, ask some additional questions, some clarifiers, and we may show up on a call and we may get presented this piece of information. Hey, I called you because Bob's sick. We actually need to know when was the last time they were seen normal. If that person responds with Bob literally was seen normal five minutes ago, great. We have that corroborating piece of information that tells us short time frame, and we can you know use that to our benefit. When we ask that other question, uh, I understand he's sick now. Well, when was the last time you saw them normal? It might expand that time frame out quite a bit. The other summary: there's quite a few tools that a, a hospital has in their toolbox to help to uh, reduce the size of this infarct and to make a difference early on. We need a few things in place, an IV. We need to get that patient to the facility with the right information that helps them guide that treatment. But there's even that cutting edge piece too outside of the TPA, uh, this interventional neurology that can go in and make a pretty critical difference when it comes to a developing stroke. But we have to have those pieces to make sure that they qualify for that or they're in the right time frame for that. Right. And the time I'm going to be calling you guys back is just that scenario we laid out in which the first CAT scan doesn't show a hemorrhage. I give the TPA 
and then that second scan does show a blocked vessel, then I'm on the phone to a receiving facility, either in Portland or in Eugene, and I'm calling you guys back because I need to get that patient there ASAP. And we've talked a lot over the years about there's very few indications for lights and sirens, but this is really an indication for lights and sirens interfacility transport to try to get that blockage cleared as soon as possible. So you guys will increasingly see these patients on the back end when you get called to transport them from Salem to uh, our regional partners who can do these interventions. Yeah, and from previous discussions that I've had um, talking about stroke management, once we start to reperfuse that penumbra, although you know we don't really know what their ultimate outcome is going to be, there is a lot to be said that reperfusing the penumbra, releasing that uh, um, that blockage in there, there's a lot of benefit to getting them back to a functional reality, getting them back to functional levels of their life, and being able to have a great functionality. If we discover it early, if we reperfuse the uh, penumbra early, we get these things rolling. And so um, minimizing our time frame and maximizing our efficiency is huge. But that's one question right here, that last seen normal time that is critical. Like the blood glucose level, that last seen normal time is one of those tenants of just great stroke care. That's what I'm, that's what I'm learning from this discussion. Agreed. One last point that you guys have heard me say before, but I'll highlight it one more time, is that what you guys do in the field and what you tell me when you hand the patient off makes a huge difference the direction I run. So I really count on you guys to be my eyes and ears and let me know what's going on because I can get a little old lady from a facility and I can uh, have the nurse check to see if she's got a urinary infection and change her absorbent disposable undergarment versus a little old lady from a facility who I rush back and forth through these three scans and then fly to Portland in a helicopter to get her large vessel. And and the, the only difference between those two patients is what you guys tell me in terms of this is what this patient can normally do. This is what the staff said. This is what the patient looks like. That means a lot. And I think that's what our, our goal is every single time. And we go out there and we're working hard to try to make a difference for patients is to be those eyes and ears from the field and to ask the questions and to bring that information to the ER so we can get good outcomes like that. And this is really good stuff to help us get better at our clinical expertise and to get more accurate with our treatments. So great. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us here today. And I look forward to doing more case reviews and talking about things and learning how we can do this job better. Thanks, Cole. We'll talk soon. Thanks. Hi everybody, this is Bianca. Today we have the honor of interviewing one of the best employees here at Falk. His name is Carl. Um, Carl has had many years of experience in EMS, in uh, military, and in teaching as well. So today I would love to introduce to you Carl. Well, hello everybody, and hello Bianca. This is not only an honor for you if you're saying so, but it, it's good. It's good to get to, to talk a little bit as well. It's always kind of car, car thesis of of my experiences. So, what would you like to know first? Well, let's dive into your experience and your background. Have experience in military, right? Right. Specifically, medical. So, uh, pretty much. The uh, let's see, I'm 54. So in 1983, I was uh, 17, and I joined 
and it was kind of during the period where the TV shows that were on, like Adam 12 and Emergency with Johnny Gage, Roy DeSoto, and a lot of folks that's maybe out of some of the current generation, but it was a show that was pretty darn popular. And I watched it, that was one of my favorite shows, Dr. Brackett, Nurse Julie, the, it was the development of the paramedic program at Los Angeles County. So I said, that that's what I want to do. I want to do, be a paramedic. But being in a Midwest rural area, I figured I want to go see the world first. And I went ahead and told my dad I wanted to join the military. <laughs> and he literally grabbed his jacket and said, let's go. Really? <laughs> Pretty much. He took me down and, and I joined. And I joined the Air Force. The problem with that was is that they, they, pro- they verbally said, I can get you and beca- have you become an Air Force medic. And that was fine. But a few months before I was supposed to go to Texas to to, do boot camp, they called and said, no, we're going to make you a security MP, shore patrol, whatever they, you know, the military police. That's all we have available. So he said, that's not acceptable. And it was really, I I got in at the point where the military was transitioning to an all volunteer. It was was, the draft had ended so I could choose, but they were having a hard time. And the only service that really did a lot of contracts was that was the Navy. So I went and tested for the Navy. I got lucky. They said, well, we could put you on a submarine as a nuclear submarine, work on an engine, nuclear power. I said, no, no, I want to be a medic. And uh, they said, okay, we got this corpsman. We'll put it in contract. I signed it. And a few months later, I was in boot camp, um, Great Lakes boot camp in 1984. Um, Went through boot camp. And then as a Navy corpsman, you go through a Navy 14-week school of becoming a nurse slash EMT type training. And then I uh, went to my first duty station in San Diego Naval Hospital. So I won't go through my whole career, but spent um, a little bit of time at a naval hospital in labor and delivery as an 18-year-old kid watching babies pop out of <laughs> the busiest delivery center of human beings in the West Coast. Was really? Those, there in San Diego? Yeah, sa- sailors like having babies. They, when they come home, they, they, they make babies. <laughs> That's what they do. Marines make babies. So people in the military make babies. So delivered a lot of a lot of babies uh, or helped out I should say and um, my my next duty station was getting trained to be a marine corpsman which is a field medic which is the marines don't have medical personnel they got corpsmen uh-huh. went to that that's about a four-month process of learning how to shoot guns take care of yourself and um, uh, becoming a field medic learning trauma so that was really my first exposure actually to the really intense field medicine, hemorrhage control, managing patients. And really the people who trained me were people from Vietnam. I mean, it's still, you know, 1980s was the people from Vietnam had just got, were, were kind of phasing out, you know, they're getting out of the service. They had done their 20 years. So most of my people that trained me were, were people that were in the rice paddies. And even some was even Korean war veterans. Our commanding officer um, was a Korean war Marine at, the, at Camp Pendleton. So thus, my 27 and a half year career, I spent almost my entire career with Marines. That's who I kind of got locked into and as a corpsman. That's what happens in the Navy, at least in the medical field, that you can either be on ships or you're with Marines. I ended up being with Marines and on ships with Marines. Um, my biggest part of my training was in 1993, 94. I decided to go become an independent duty corpsman. Okay. What That's, does that mean? That, well, what that means is it's they, they're the people that go on ships by themselves, the destroyers, the frigates. Um, oh, okay. You can specialize and become a sub-IDC, which means you go down on the sub and you have to graduate sub submarine training. I elected surface ships um, and ended up being put on a destroyer, Spruance-class destroyer. But we're it. We're on the destroyer with another couple of corpsmen, young female or male corpsmen. 
taking care of a crew of about 350 people. We float around with an aircraft carrier, which has got an ICU, doctors, anesthesiologists, surgeons. So if somebody gets really sick, you can just fly them to the carrier. You have a mm -hmm. helicopter on your on your destroyer, you fly them over. But it gives you in a year and a year and two month school, you go through um, the PA approach to patient care, which is a physician's assistant. You got 140 medicines. You got to remember primary wow. care medicines and antibiotics. You do um, a basic lab tech course, and you also do industrial hygiene, and then the registered nurse part of practic practicum, which is like insertion of NG tubes, things like that. And that way you can provide medicine on your own. And by the 1990, 1989, 1990, the invasion of Kuwait, I got sent to a Marine unit. And then a lot of us IDCs were being, I was what an IDC then, but in 1990, I went to uh, Kuwait, was involved in, the, in, in combat and war. That was the first time in 1994, after I went through IDC school, they were pulling us IDCs into Marine units to provide frontline trauma care, setting up casualty collection points. And they were really, in the 90s and then up to the point of the, the global war on terror in 2001, there was a lot of stuff going on in development of trauma care, hmm. how things were being done, looking at how we did things in the past. So the military, you know, our, our EMS is really a, 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 came from the military. We have a, you know, the military's learned learned their lessons and they've passed them on to us in EMS. Thus, that's why we're using tourniquets and all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of it. And I got out in 2011. I did several tours in Iraq um, with Marines. And then one tour I went to train Iraqi soldiers and was put up in a fort in the northern part of Iraq, where near nearly Syria. And that was probably the toughest tour because we're there with a small team training Iraqi medics who are, you know, they were young men working in shops. Had no, Some of them never even drove a car before or seen anything and teach 20 of them into medics and when Whoa. i left when i left out of the 20 i trained only six were still alive so 14 were killed in action mm -hmm. at the fort and um pretty much almost every day just kind of a senseless carnage of people getting shot and blown up um being embedded up there. there's a place called talafar near erbil which is where a great deal of the isis most of that isis uh came later you know in uh few years ago when they had to root ISIS out of out of uh, Syria so mm -hmm. but uh, that was probably my exciting tour so I'll total four four combat tours after 27 years I was pretty happy to get out because they wanted me to do another one and um, I just sat down and talked to my wife and we just agreed it was time to get out because uh, she just didn't want to go through me being deployed again so I was yeah. I was cool with that so it was time to get out in the entire time I was in um, I went to EMT school in 1985 at Camp Pendleton, and I always kept my EMT basic up through the entire, my whole career, I was an EMT basic. Every two years I recertified. Now back then it was all paper, you'd mail it in, they'd mail you back your card. <laughs> and it was hard because it was not, you didn't have to be an EMT to be in the military. It was just something oh, I chose. No, no, oh. I got it in 1985 because in 86, um, I was on a base ambulance. And back then, the, when really still now, a lot of the bases have ambulances with military EMTs. But you get this higher scope of care because you can do IVs past certain meds. So you're sort of like an advanced EMT. Mm -hmm. And you provide care for the people who work on base, live on base, the dependents, and you transport patients between hospitals. I think now a lot of the bigger bases have federal fire, the, which are civilians that are contracted to provide that same service because they want to have the soldiers more, and Marines and, and Navy corpsmen more working with their units. So, oh, I see. Um, but in the 80s and 90s, base ambulances were, were 
manned by by us. And it's kind of crazy because you're on a base ambulance in these dress whites, sailor uniform. Yeah, I work <laughs> with the doggy cover, the whole you know doggy dish, everything, and you're in this white uniform going out to car wrecks and wow. picking up drunk people in a in a you know in a white uniform that didn't stay white very long. You know, I believe you know, it. That was pretty pretty rough on the uniforms, <laughs> for sure. So I so I was an EMT through my whole career. Never was a paramedic. The IDC converted fairly quickly. When I got out in 2011, I moved to Oregon. Mm-hmm. I knew an ER doctor who had a keys to a house in Sisters, Oregon. He said, live there. I got out with a very short warning time. I just decided to get out because um, yeah. I didn't want to deploy. So I went to Sisters, and then I found out about Bend and Redmond, and I moved. It was The housing was like 600 bucks because of the crash, the 2000 crash. Oh, okay, 2007 okay. crash, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. It's really cheap to get a house, uh, so I rented a house. Me and my wife moved down there, and then I started uh, um, look for a job as an EMT basic, right? Because I mean, yeah, I have all this great experience, but as uh, but I'm you know an EMT basic, uh, nationally registered EMT basic. It took six months to get my Oregon. Uh, they were Oregon's kind of nice. They were a state that was pretty progressive on recognizing military service, so they let us convert to Oregon EMT basic. Okay. EMT, um, and so. Uh, couldn't really find a job, but I wanted to go to paramedic school. Bend offered that. It was they they had the least amount of pressure of students, uh, so I could get in quick. Mm. And you know, thank God for the GI Bill, which mm-hmm. is an older thing. It used to be well back in the 40s and 50s for World War II. They reinstituted it so they would pay for my education. Plus, they give you money to live. Mm. So went to paramedic school at Bend. At the same time, I began to teach at Bend. I got offered a, immediately oh. a teaching position, so I started teaching EMT. So there'll be days where I go to the paramedic school and other days I was teaching EMT basic, which got, got me into the teaching piece, which I felt was kind of where I wanted to be in the long run. That was always in the back of my mind. I wanted to be mm-hmm. involved in the teaching side, but I felt like I need to get become a paramedic if I'm going to teach paramedic at some point. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, that was... And you had all the skill set already. A lot. You know, yeah. sure, we, we did OR time and did intubations. I put chest tubes in. I can suture. I love teaching suture. I was getting involved with uh, the doctor that had the house and sisters we were teaching suture classes and stuff at survival conferences and teaching ivs and iv antibiotics and different stuff and uh so yeah i've got that experience but it doesn't mean nothing you know you go to Mm -hmm. it doesn't you have to have the license you got to have the paramedic card and i always wanted the paramedic card so i said no matter what let me get the paramedic (laughs) card gotta get it and so i got so i got that in uh 2014 so then became a paramedic and then let's see Living in Redmond, I started working at Jefferson County EMS, which is okay. north up in Madras. It's mm-hmm. a rural EMS, um, mainly volunteers. You ride up to the scene. The fire guys are coming up with, you know, they just got done bucket hay, and they show up in a rescue vehicle. <laughs> you have EMRs. matter of fact, most were just EMRs, which is great. EMTs, mm-hmm. but experience, a lot of experience. But they had, and um, so a lot of austere rural medicine. Enjoyed it. And, uh, but in 2016, by 2017, I just, felt I needed to take a big break, disconnect. I had a couple surgeries done, and so I took the summer off, and then in 27, October of 2017, I saw the Falk advertisements, and I'd heard about it, and uh, applied and came here to Falk in October of uh, 2017, 2017, yep. So there's my life story for you, (laughs) and how I got here at Falk. So, and I've been here for what, almost three and a half years. Yeah. So that's about it. And then in, in the time I was at Jefferson County and even up till the time last year I was teaching at Bend, I'm teaching PHTLS for them 
the last week of April um, is one of their two credit one credit classes so that's coming up for them in uh, in April so I'm still connected with Bend mm -hmm. uh, COCC through Bend so something I still do I like and I'm not sure where I'm gonna go with that right now with the college teaching thing I don't know mm -hmm. well what do you like about teaching what interests you mm -hmm. so much about it well I'm 54 and I'm pretty much getting to a point where I've got my own medical problems like any 54 year old guy my chassis is getting kind of wore out and I realized that at some point I'm gonna be the patient so I figure I might as well train the people that's going to take care of me, right? <laughs> I mean, I could go down at any minute. I could just seize up and go down. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, <laughs> no, I think that you owe, I think that that's the natural progression, right, in EMS, at least right now. And I think that's what EMS has got to figure out what they want to do for a, what they do for a career path. Mm -hmm. I think at age, that there comes a time that you get off the ambulance, that that's tough. It's tough on your body and it's tough. Um, on you and that you take your skills especially if you have a good experience set you're able to um, stand in front of people and teach and feel comfortable doing it that's a progression you should go to and I've and in the military I taught EMT school at three different duty stations so I was already taught EMT basic mm -hmm. um, so I was like hey this is this is something I want to do so I, I mean I enjoy teaching I enjoy passing off my knowledge it's kind of fun to see somebody do their you know for the first time do something new you know <laughs> it's always it's always a fun time so um, I, and I, I mean I enjoy teaching and the money's not bad either um, for the amount of time you put in um, mm -hmm. it's it's profitable and like I said it's a progression or I think I'm probably gonna head at some point soon <laughs> <laughs> so with that extensive military background and, and all that you did there how was it making that transition into really civilian life and not having to respond to Kuwait or respond to Iraq. And really good because coming here instead. Number one, you did, I didn't have to put paperwork in to go on a vacation or leave. <laughs> um, there you go. Yeah, that's you know in the military, a lot of people don't realize your life is really you, what you just said is you're you're you they own you. Mm -hmm. They can deploy you and take you away from your family, take you away from things that you might be working on projects, but basically do what they want with you. I was definitely getting pretty tired of that, but I was getting more senior in rank and I was finding myself more tired actually just dealing with, it's very exhausting to lead people and to also take care of them. And I was taking care of this younger generation and it was just, uh, we deal with a lot of their personal problems. So I became, I felt like a father figure yeah. over and over again. And that's, that's exhausting. It's good to have a set of kids, I think, and push them out the door to college. But when you're every, every six months, eight months, I got new sailors and I'd have to um, really work hard to keep them on the straight and narrow and get them successful. So that was that was tiring, but it was it's rewarding, but it's tiring. Um, the one thing about the military that folks don't understand when you're when you're working military medicine, you're dealing with healthy pathophysiologically healthy Marines and mm -hmm. sailors, and yeah, you got dependents on base, and some of them might be medical train wrecks. But for the most part, you're dealing with pretty healthy patients. So everything's fairly everything from doing IVs and just doing procedures. They're they're healthy people. They don't. They do well, no matter kind of what you do. Hmm. The uh, the one thing I didn't, you, you don't have experience, we're not seeing, you don't see heart attacks. We've done physicals on people, so we don't allow people with asthma in the military. So you don't see, you know, your basic asthma attacks. You don't see a lot of those, that stuff. You know, you're not dealing with overdoses because military is drug free. It's, it's zero tolerance on drugs to be drug tested. So 
So a lot of the stuff you learn in paramedic school is important that you apply in here, obviously, in our own, what we see here in Salem, in our in our ambulance zone, what we see. So, But in the military, I, I honestly didn't have that much experience with that. I wouldn't like going out doing 12, we don't do 12 leads in the field. You're mm-hmm. basically doing trauma medicine, usually for traumatic problems, or you're doing you know, bad backs, bad shoulders, knee pain, ankle pain, shoulder pain, ankle pain, knee pain with Marines um, and, and some psych problems. But uh, so there is a transition that you got to go through understanding that you're going to see a different kind of patient and you're going to see older patients. So that's that's good. And I, and I think that's kind of what one of the things I enjoy and I don't want to almost admit it. But when you deal with I'm old, I'm 54, I'm old. You know, I'm at a point where I can have a conversation usually with anybody even older, the people we see at Bonaventure to Sunnyside and all the other places we go to. But I, I can quickly pretty much have a conversation with them because really I'm dealing with somebody that's at the age of my parents. Mm-hmm. So I, I know, you know, that whether it's music, artists, actors of their era, I can immediately draw up a quick conversation, put them at ease, and it makes life just kind of easier. And I know it's a little tougher for our younger medics, younger younger EMTs, to sit in the back of an ambulance with a 80-year-old guy to chit-chat with them yeah. after he took a ground-level fall, where I can usually pretty quickly identify with them. So that transition's easier because of my age, but not so much of the military experience. Mm-hmm. But so, you know, I'm seeing, I mean, I'm still seeing cases I haven't never got to see before because I dealt with healthy people. You know, that's that's the one side. So with all that experience and that huge transition, EMS seems to attract a lot of military personnel. Uh, I think it's just the way it's structured and the way that it's taught. What advice would you give to somebody who's has a similar background to yours, was served in the military for an extended period of time and has decided to transition to civilian life and wants to continue pursuing medicine on an ambulance. What advice would you give them? Well, I, it's, it's, I tell people this and they don't believe me, but my very first thing I tell people have been when I teach paramedic is I introduce myself, I tell them who I am, and then I ask everybody in the class, I said, do you all know who, you know, does anybody here know who are rich, any rich paramedics, any paramedics that are wealthy and doing well? And everybody kind of looks at me like I'm crazy. And then I tell them, well, what if you guys really want to have be financially free, you might want to get up and go down the hallway and make a right, and that's the nursing program. <laughs> and they, my head, head instructor usually shakes his head going, oh, God, we're going to lose our students. But it's the truth. This is not a financially, this, I mean, until you get into fire rescue service, you're going to have difficulty having a, a living wage job, being a paramedic alone. I'm blessed. I got pension disability so I'm, I'm financially I'm in a gr- better condition than ever mm-hmm. um, but <clears throat> my advice to people who are coming out of the military is uh, get that GI Bill going um, if you get some experience you build your resume so you know maybe go become a paramedic but man really set your set your goal up pretty high go into nursing PA nurse practitioner a lot of folks don't know it. I've applied uh, several times for PA school. I got interviewed at UAW. I didn't get picked up. I'm sorry. Very disappointing. It, it really was crushing, to be bluntly honest with you. It, was, it had happened in that 2016 time frame okay. coming to Falcon. That's why I took the summer off. It was one of the reasons I just threw my hands up because I thought I was a shoe-in, and I was being a little cavalier, I think, and thinking I was a shoe-in. There's more you gotta you got to do to have a good PA package. But uh, I, that's the things I recommend people when they get out of the military shoot high quick and get for those you're going to make more money and that's going to make you a lot happier or go back into the military 
and become an officer because mm-hmm. having becoming a nurse or a PA or a nurse practitioner, you can go back in and, and the money's pretty darn good. If that if you love the military, if you like that that piece of it, if I had if I had that choice of coming out and becoming a PA and going back in somehow and doing more time, I would. Well, I don't know, my body would allow that, but <laughs> I, I would like that because I do, I do love the military. I do love a lot of the regimentation of that. I think there's a lot of good things. So, I mean, it's kind of nice to work in a drug-free zone, and it's kind of worse nice to see patients that are also drug-free and that are not vomiting and throwing up on you and, you know, Fighting not you. going to OD ones all the mm-hmm. time or EDP ones as much. <laughs> but... Anyway, that's kind of my, my advice is, you know, aim high, get a goal, and go towards it. Paramedic will definitely be a stair-stepping, or even EMT. I think in FALC, I think our greatest assets and the most important thing everybody needs to focus on is the development of our EMTs. Absolutely. They are truly the future. They're going to be the future medics, and they're only going to be as good as the work the medics put into them, mm-hmm. the work that they put into themselves, and, um, and encourage them to reach kind of for the stars and become better i mean there's no reason some quite a few of them right now in foul could not become physicians um could be the surgeon that you're doing a turnover report in yeah it'd be about 16 years but you know they they can do it it's there it's available you know go for it so what other exciting questions do you have <laughs> uh, you got them all um i think you know falc's a great organization this is a great place for folks to get the experience it, there's a comfort level because you're arriving on scene with three other medics. Um, it, they're, they're colleagues. Think of them as colleagues. Keep that, that word in your head, colleagues. Um, they're also professionals. And um, I think this is a great place for a paramedic to come and grow. I, I never, never have not felt that at all. This is a good place to be. I'm still getting challenged um, with different cases. I think there's cases out there. Yeah, I like trauma. I've done trauma. Trauma's boring. I mean, it's A, B, C, D, E. Well, actually, I'm sorry. It's X, A, B, C, D, E <laughs> with the new PHTLS. It's they keep stop the bleeding. adding more stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They, um, but trauma's kind of easy, but, you know, getting out there to the medical emergencies and wickering through why somebody's belly hurts or why they're having chest pain, mm-hmm. reading EKGs, that stuff. I'm, I'm not the strongest person. There's people here that are far better that can read a 12 lead than me. Um, but to go out there, learn, find out get that most important skill of a healthcare provider, right? Which is, is he sick or not sick? Or she sick, not sick? If they're sick, they need to be, you know, they need to be in the hospital where there's a ton of people who know everything and can get the test, the right test that that person needs. So sick, not sick is all EMS comes down to, right? Sick, not sick. Do I need to go fast? Do you need to go slow? And I've got a whole bunch of people here to help me. For those who want a challenge, go to Jefferson County go down to the go down to Grants Pass or wherever, go down to Lakeview, go go find an agency that runs calls where you're it. You're yep. it. And you drive forty five minutes an hour and you look down and your patient decompensates on you and actually see them go through, you know Yep. Type one, type two, type three shock and, and they croak <laughs> on you because in you know, nothing that you did wrong, but you just you get to watch people really get worse and get sick. Um, on you, whether it's emergency or trauma, and that that'll help you grow. That's for sure, but also could be pretty mind shattering as well. So we're blessed. We're blessed here in Salem. What ten minute transport times at mm-hmm. the most with traffic. So that's a good that's a good thing. And you know, I I can't say I would want to do anything different. I, I'm happy being here. I'm not sure how long I'll stay here, but I'll keep fighting the fight until until I can't fight the fight or until mm-hmm. I find something that really uh, knocks my socks off that I want to do. 
Thank you so much, for Carl, for coming in. Um, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. All right. This month, one of my next topics that I would like to talk about is to the lung tissue. So I'm going to focus on pulmonary trauma this month um, as um, and really try to take a deep dive on the challenges that pulmonary trauma puts in the path of us as EMS providers and eventually uh, working with that patient long term as they attempt to heal their lungs. So to start, let's talk a little bit about the lungs and let's talk a little bit about their structures. Each of the lungs are these expansive organs that are able to um, swell up and they're able to expand out into this chamber inside of your chest. And then it's also able to contract and deflate and turn into a much smaller organ. And that all occurs inside of these two chambers on either side of the chest. So you have the right lung and the left lung. We're talking anatomic, right? So the right lung is proximal to my right arm. The left lung is proximal to my left arm. And so when we're talking about these two chambers, uh, these two chambers are not equal. The right chamber and the right lung, it's a bit larger than the left side. The left side also has to account for the heart being located right there next to it. So the right lung does more work than the left lung. The right lung has a bit more performance when it comes to performing the tasks that the lung can in comparison to the left. And another thing to think about with this is that the right lung has three lobes in it and the left lung has two lobes in it. So when we're talking about the injuries that might occur between the right lung or the left lung, or if somebody's had a pneumonectomy on one side where they've had an entire lung removed or even a partial piece of their lung removed, depending on which lung it is, it will affect and how that patient is able to oxygenate from this point on. And also when we talk about injuring lungs, specifically if I'm talking about injuring the left lung, as that lung starts to expand or collapse or change, it may impact the performance of the heart beneath it and performance of how that heart pumps blood throughout the body. So I want everybody to kind of keep that in mind to start. Secondly, when we're thinking about the lungs, they're not just these sacs that fill up with air and then deflate with air. They actually have a whole network of blood vessels that have to be able to attach to them as well. So we're talking about not only this respiratory function, but we also need to think about lungs having a significant cardiac function or a cardiopulmonary function. They are vital to being able to exchange gas in those capillary beds. And it's not just for breathing in oxygen. I also want to temper this by saying the lungs have to be able to release carbon dioxide as well. It's critical for our pH balance. It's critical for us to be able to off-gas these byproducts of cellular metabolism. I mean, the lungs are so important that even now with cardiac arrest protocols, really focusing a lot on end-tidal capnography, performance of the lungs is pivotal for us to be able to understand if we're getting good chest compressions, if we have return of ROSC, if that uh, patient is actually uh, taking in oxygen and 
offloading all of these byproducts of cellular metabolism at the cellular level, we're able to take our reading from the lungs at that point, and it's all critically dependent that the lungs are able to perform that gas exchange, which means we have to think about the lungs as not only these sacs that increase in size and decrease in size and that are constantly moving inside of the chest wall, we have to understand that it also is the blood vessels pumping blood in and around these lungs and removing the blood away from these lungs that's allow us to exchange these critical byproducts as well. So going back to more on like the physical nature of the lungs, outside of the lungs and kind of stuck to the outside of each lung is the structure known as the visceral pleura. And then you have this similar in nature structure that's actually stuck to the outer layers of this space that the lung kind of takes up. And that's known as the parietal pleura, that outer layer. So the visceral pleura is on the inner layer and it's right stuck to the outer layers of the lung. And then you have this parietal pleura, which is the outer layer of the this chamber. And in between, we have this pleural space. We have this gap. And it is that gap there that these two pleura kind of slide over one another which gives us a whole place here that can be filled up with blood or filled up with fluid or develop an infection or help to collapse the lung. Um, and it's really important to know that that gap exists. So now let's talk a little bit about how we breathe, the actual mechanism of how we breathe. So you have the floor of the thoracic cavity here, which is the diaphragm, this wide, flat muscle. And when you look at it, it kind of has this shape of like an upside down U, especially when you look at it on an X-ray. Now this muscle here, when it's relaxed, when it's lengthened out, creates kind of a, an upside down sort of a dish appearance. As your diaphragm tightens and pulls down, it lengthens out that cavity and it creates this negative pressure inside of the lungs. And as it pulls down and as it makes those structures even bigger, as the chest wall expands and as those things uh, start to uh, increase in their size, it creates this negative pressure inside of the lungs and you draw in this air through your mouth, like your oropharynx, hypopharynx, down through your trachea and down into the lungs, where then the lungs expand and their surface area expands and their volume expands to the point of capacity. From that point on, um, you've now drawn in everything to try to equalize the pressure from outside of the body to inside of the lungs by having the diaphragm try to drop down and flatten itself out and causes this negative pressure. So you draw that gas into your lungs for exchange. And then as you relax your diaphragm and as your intracostal muscles start to contract to try to reduce the size of the chest, then all of a sudden you have a higher pressure gradient inside of your lungs than you do outside. And as that container starts to get smaller and smaller, you start to off gas out of your lungs. 
the lungs then contract, they deflate um, their own elasticity, starting to force some of those things back out. And then eventually everything reaches back to its resting point where the lungs have deflated or are still continuing to deflate. But we ourselves, we feel like our lungs have deflated. And what's interesting is, is that the lung can become hyperinflated and have difficulties in how we uh, exhale. So you can actually inhale and then kind of forcibly allow yourself to inhale even more, forcibly allow yourself to inhale even more. Um, a lot of free divers do this before they dive down underwater. They'll take this uh, regimented set of breaths to try to work their lungs to the point where they actually have a majority of their lungs full of oxygen, where they end up increasing their own oxygen levels uh, to a nice deep level, and they fill up their oxygen reserves as much as possible by doing this deep breathing regimen before they dive under the water. And then that way they can have an oxygen reserve when they go underwater for a long period of time. There are disease processes that can affect this uh, elasticity of the lung. There are disease processes that can narrow the lung. That makes it more difficult for your body to have a, you have to have a longer exhalation phase. That's known as an I to E ratio, uh, where you have your inhalation to exhalation sort of uh, ratio here. A lot of asthmatics have problems with that sort of a ratio where they can eventually get this air gulped down into their lungs past the inflamed tissue, but then they need to actually hold their breath a little bit longer as they exhale here. They need to try to, before they take their next inhaled breath, they need to exhale for a much longer period of time. Otherwise, they get this phenomenon known as air trapping, which is probably a whole nother lecture to talk about here. But it's really important to understand when we start talking about pulmonary trauma that how much gas is trapped inside of the lungs during the time of injury makes us more likely to have a problem with like barotrauma, a mechanism of injury that causes compression of the lungs and might even cause us to rupture a lung because of that pressure. So when we start thinking about these structures and we think about how we respirate on the cellular level, we have to get gases into the lung and then back out of the lung. And then the respiration process is where the blood goes to the lungs. You have this exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide at that capillary level. And then the blood pumps away back down to your cells where then it's used to create energy. It's used in the Krebs cycle that, to produce energy. And then the rest of that respiratory cycle is the CO2 returning back to the lungs, exchanging back across that uh, capillary bed, and then allowing us to ventilate it back out. So that's a really good thing to point out is the difference between what is ventilation, the gases going in and out of the lungs versus respiration, which is me using that oxygen, turning it into energy, having this byproduct of CO2, and also including the lungs to allow that gas exchange to occur. And that's going to be really, really important here when we start talking a bit about uh, pulmonary contusions or bruises to the lungs. So let's think a little bit about it then again about mechanism of injury. Um, obviously, we're going to be talking a bit about penetrating injuries. So let's talk about that first. If I get a violation, some sort of a mechanism that penetrates through the chest wall 
in between the ribs or through the ribs, and it ends up popping a hole in that garbage sack lining. Remember, that's the parietal pleura, dividing out the visceral pleura, forming that pleural cavity. I now have this gap there in the pleura. And remember when we were talking about how we breathe, my diaphragm drops down and it creates this negative pressure? Well, air is nothing more than a liquid, right? It's a gas, but it acts like a liquid. And if I'm trying to breathe in, that air is going to follow the path of least resistance and it's gonna flow into places perhaps where I don't want it. Now, when I breathe normally and my diaphragm drops down and my lungs expand, fantastic. But when my diaphragm drops down and I have this violation between my ribs, I might actually suck air into that gap in between the visceral and the parietal pleura. And that gas now goes inside of that uh, pleural space, inside of that pleural cavity, and it's gonna take up room. And when it takes up room there, my lung can't expand down into that spot, right? This is that pneumothorax. This is that air that's been trapped inside of this cavity where I don't necessarily want it, and it came through this sucking chest wound. It came through this wound in my chest that when my diaphragm drops down and it creates that negative space, it just gets sucked through that wound into that gap. Now, as my diaphragm relaxes and my lung changes its shape and it starts to deflate and it gets smaller, that air stays in the same place. It hasn't had a chance to escape back through that same vent hole. And the next time that I breathe in, I'm gonna cause that, that sort of like suction again, and it's gonna suck even more air into that gap and into that space. And every time I do that, I add a few more milliliters, I add more volume to that building gas ball on the inside here, which means I have less chance for air to fill my lung and actually perform the respiration that I need at the capillary level. Because remember this gas that's inside of this pleural space, it's not doing anything other than just taking up space. Now that can also be blood. That would be a hemothorax or some sort of a combination between the two. A hemoneumothorax where I have blood accumulating down into that space and I get that same sort of a problem based on the trauma there. It's also possible to cause this same sort of a reaction by taking air escaping from the lung and putting it into that space as well. Imagine if the penetrating trauma didn't just puncture a wound in the parietal pleura, but it actually punctures that visceral pleura and actually punctures the lung, or I have rupture of the lung on the inside, and that gas is able to escape from that uh, lung, maybe as the lung is deflating, it leaks out in, in between the visceral and the parietal pleura. And now I have this, once again, developing dead space of gas inside of the chest that as it builds, it prevents me from taking a deeper breath. So when we start thinking about which lung we've injured, remember that left lung, that left lung that sits right there around the heart, imagine that that left lung becomes engorged, full of blood, or it becomes engorged, full of air. It's gonna put pressure on the structures that are down below it. 
Now, this is where we're starting to talk about a pneumothorax or a hemothorax becoming a tension pneumothorax, where it has reached the point where it has fully collapsed the lung or mostly collapsed the lung, and it's impacting the great vessels down below it. It's impacting the heart's ability to expand and contract. And every subsequent breath that occurs, I might still be developing that tension pneumo even farther to the point now where I compromise blood flow as it's coming out of those great vessels or as it's attempting to move through the body. Now this can happen on the right side too, but as that right side builds up in pressure, it's gonna put pressure on all of the other structures that are around it as well. And as that you know, chest wall becomes engorged, as it becomes hyperinflated, I might see this paradoxical movement in the chest. I'm watching the chest wall during expansion and contraction as the patient is breathing, and the right side stays hyperinflated, and it doesn't change position. Um, whereas the left side maybe is expanding and contracting or vice versa, depending on kind of what I'm seeing here. Something else I might see is I might see a uh, delineation of the midline of the patient here. I might start seeing the trachea start to deviate to one side or another. So I'm looking at where the trachea comes down the neck and I'm looking at how it's hanging there. Remember the trachea just about where your collarbones meet right underneath that is this area known as the carina. This is where the right and left lung uh, divide from one another. As one side becomes hyperinflated and takes up more and more space, it starts to push the mediastinum, the middle point, the middle division of the thoracic cavity. It pushes it off to one side. And my trachea then will follow that other lung. It'll follow and be pushed away from the side where I have this developing pneumothorax. So another sign to look for is tracheal deviation. You look at the trachea, and if it's deviating, perhaps off to the patient's left side, it's indicating the opposite side from where the problem is. So if my trachea is deviating to the left, meaning it's being shoved off to the left, the pressure buildup is in the right lung. It's in the right side, and I should be looking for the injury to that uh, chest wall there. Going back to the, our mechanisms of injury here of what might be causing this, remember also that if I break ribs and if I have separation of ribs, that's like having a group of knives just sitting right there inside of my chest. Um, they may penetrate down into organs or they might be penetrating into the lung. Um, perhaps this was blunt force trauma to the uh, ribs and those ribs were pushed into the space where the lung would normally keep. You might not have a visible wound from the outer portion of the body to the inner portion of the body and we still might have this uh, underlying puncture of the lungs that came from the ribs maybe or perhaps it even came from the inside remember we were talking a bit before about how maybe if the lungs over expand and then maybe they suffer some sort of a trauma if my lungs are over expanded and I fall onto my chest or I fall onto my back and there's this sudden compression 
of the lungs there with a full deep breath inside of my lungs as I fall and I strike my back or I strike my my chest or I'm in a car accident or I'm in some sort of a a mechanism that compresses my chest after taking a deep breath, I can actually have a result of barotrauma where I overinflate and then rupture a piece of the lungs. Sometimes that can even happen spontaneously in structures known as blebs or weakened portions of the lungs secondary to, let's say, COPD or lung disease, um, perhaps even just as that tissue becomes more worn out and less elastic as atelectasis sets in uh, on those, those lung tissues. We might just pop a bleb through normal breathing processes, which can eventually lead also to a pneumothorax or the development of one of these hyperinflated lungs. Another disease process that's out there that can take up um, space inside of a patient's chest is something known as a pleural effusion. Now, effusion means that you have a collection of fluid in an area, like I can have a, an effusion in my knee, I believe. I can have disease processes that just cause me to collect fluid inside of that pleural space as well. Um, a patient who suffers from a pleural effusion might just have cells or an accumulation of fluid or cells that are producing fluid inside of that lining between the lung and this garbage sack lining on the outside. And it does the exact same thing that we would expect a hemothorax to do or a pneumothorax to do. It takes up the space that the lung wants to expand out into. That can compromise lung performance. Think about what a patient feels like when their lung does not expand fully. Maybe that patient has a short respiratory cycle. You ask them to take a deep breath in and they don't get full expansion of the chest. Um, maybe it's really uncomfortable for them to breathe to that deeper level. Maybe the patient is chronically hypoxic because we're not getting enough expansion and contraction of the lungs. Maybe the patient is tachypnic. We put them on capnography. And we see the patient is breathing at a faster rate just to maintain that same oxygenation level from underneath. The point is, is that when we start looking at a patient who looks like they're short of breath, we need to start thinking about the structures and the things underneath it that might be causing them to want to breathe faster. Maybe it's a physiologic reason that they're breathing quicker. Maybe it's actually a physical reason or a physical manifestation or of a problem within the lungs. So we wanna make sure that whenever we're dealing with any sort of a concern with the lung, we wanna listen. We wanna listen to that space there on the lung. And one thing that you might hear with, let's say like a pneumothorax, is you're not gonna hear lung sounds in the area where the lung should be expanding and contracting uh, over and over again. You might just hear no lung sounds at all. And that can also be diagnostic. Sometimes it's not just the fact that you can hear something underneath there, it's the fact that you can't hear something underneath there that should clue you in to that there's a problem in that area. Maybe it's even just diminished lung sounds in the area. You're only gonna have a sound if you have movement of gas through those hollow, hollow chambers of the lungs um, in order to produce that sound. And if they're breathing deeply and you're in the right spot, and you don't have bad hearing, maybe like I do, you might end up finding that you have diminished lung sounds that might point you towards saying, I'm concerned about what's going on here in the right lung. There may be an issue here going on in that area.
Going back to the mechanisms of injury and the things that we might see with this patient, somebody who is suffering from uh, trauma to the lung can absolutely have a problem with something known as a pulmonary contusion. Now, a contusion is a bruise. Being able to see that in the field, you look and you see this purplish sort of blotch on the skin where there's been a rupture of the capillaries and the blood has escaped in this diffuse area inside of there. But also think about what that feels like. The tissue is swollen. It's inflamed. It's thicker than usual because that fluid is in the area. Then the body rushes all of its defense mechanisms there too. So you get white blood cells in the area. You get almost like an increase in blood flow to the area as well as the body attempts to seal off the problems and reabsorb that blood and fight off any subsequent infection that can happen with that. That same thing can happen in the lungs with a pulmonary contusion. So we've bruised this lung tissue now, and the lung becomes swollen. The blood kind of escapes into that interstitial space outside of the capillary beds of the lung tissue. And it starts to add this gap between the capillary beds that were there. Or now those capillary beds are ruptured in the area, and you don't get good blood flow coming through those capillary beds. The patient loses out on a couple of things. They lose out on some of the elasticity of the lung and the ability for it to expand and contract. I will also say on a secondary side note, it's probably going to be painful for them to breathe, which also tends to make people breathe more shallowly and it makes them want to stunt their breathing just a bit so that they don't experience that pain. That absolutely affects their ability to breathe. But more back on point here, if I'm also removing the amount of surface area for those capillaries to exchange gases, remember this is part of respiration, not just ventilation, I might be able to ventilate a contused lung, although maybe a little bit uh, more difficultly. I'm going to have worse respiration in that lung. I'm going to have worse gas exchange in that lung. And that absolutely leads to things like hypoxia. It absolutely leads to tissues starving for oxygen. That puts additional stress on the body, stress on the kidneys, stress on the brain, stress on the heart. It makes that patient feel hypoxic, which means I have this adrenaline dump occurring inside of their body. They're not going to be able to sleep as well. They're not going to be as comfortable. That patient is going to have long-term effects from what's going on with this pulmonary contusion. Think about how long a bruise exists on your own body. How long does it take you to heal that bruise? A pulmonary contusion can absolutely take a long period of time to heal, and it's going to affect that patient during that whole time frame um, that that uh, tissue isn't performing as well as it once could. So this is one of those things I want to point out here. We go to these car accidents or we go on scene of patients that have suffered some sort of a compression injury to the chest, or maybe it was the airbag that deployed and popped them right in the chest, right? Gave them a good solid punch right there in the chest to keep them from receiving worse injuries from hitting against the steering wheel or hitting against the windshield. The seatbelt itself is also compressing the chest as their body goes through those decelerations, uh, having those sorts of forces act on their body. And especially if that lung was full, if they had just taken a deep breath and they have that quick compression of the chest wall, 
I might have pressurization changes in the chest that causes me to rupture a lung on the inside and a slow developing pneumothorax. I might have had somebody who popped a bleb on the inside. And not only that now, but I also have this understanding that I can contuse the lung. I can cause a a, a developing gas exchange problem that will lead to hypoxia and hypoxic events that are not just rupturing the lung. We're talking about just bruising the lung and causing this inadequate performance secondary to a bruise on the chest wall. So I want to keep a lot of those things in mind when we're talking about pulmonary trauma. You know, obviously our treatments in the field, first off is gonna being hyper suspicious about injuries, looking for suspected underlying injuries of the lungs, being vigilant about our lung sounds, listening to the front and listening to the back of that chest wall, watching the patient's respiratory cycle, looking for developing signs like tracheal deviation, like JVD, listening to those lungs to see if I have a change over the course of time. It's not just one set of lung sounds, it's the developing lung sounds over time. Thinking about the performance of that patient's lungs, what kind of underlying disease processes that they have there, and then advising that patient about why it would be very important to go and have a chest x-ray, because that's where we're gonna start to see these disease processes there. That's why there's so much value with going to the hospital and getting a few of these simple scans or getting a few of these simple sorts of tests. They're going to help look for these developing problems that this patient may not be aware of. And we may just be monitoring this patient to the hospital so that they can get that sort of a scan, but we can be an advocate talking about those things and helping the patient understand why these things are important and being suspicious of injuries to the lungs as we might see them in the field. Ongoing supportive treatments, capnography, delivering uh, oxygen in certain ways if they might end up needing it. And then all the way up and until watching as this uh, pneumo ends up becoming a tension pneumo or identifying that tension pneumo might end up uh, needing us to perform an emergency needle thoracotomy, which is attempting to take the pressure out of that pleural cavity, uh, return the lung's ability to expand into that pleural cavity, right? So we're putting another artificial hole and a vent inside of that pleural cavity to allow the gas or the blood to leak out of that area. And by doing that, we can immediately allow the lung to start to push that uh, air back out, we're going to reduce the tension that has occurred on the inside there where it's tight and full like a fully expanded balloon and we're gonna draw that air back out. We're gonna draw that uh, fluid back out and now the lung can expand again. The heart can expand again. The great vessels aren't gonna be compressed again and at least for that short period of time, we've reduced some of the emergency that's there. This might mean that we may need to vent them once it develops into a tension pneumo again. Maybe our vent clots off. Maybe it kinks off. Maybe it slides out of that um, cavity space there because remember it's expanding and contracting every time they breathe. We might end up needing to vent them again and perform another needle thoracotomy or perform it at another location. That's why it's so critical that we know our landmarks. We have to know where the mid-axillary line is, where the mid-clavicular line is. We have to understand that if we end up misjudging the number of ribs that we're counting, 
before we put in that needle that there might be consequences there. Remember the liver is there if we're going too low and we want to be aligned within those intercostal spaces so that we're getting to the, uh, the pleural cavity as directly and as efficiently as we can and avoiding things that might end up causing additional bleeding or additional damage inside of the patient's body. So that's a brief overview on pulmonary contusions, pulmonary trauma, um, overpressurization issues, penetrating trauma to the lungs. I highly encourage you all to look up x-rays that uh, have to deal with pulmonary contusion. Another thing to look at here that's uh, pretty important to look at a phenomenon known as VQ mismatch. And what this is really trying to say is that um, a lung can absolutely receive oxygen, but no blood flow, and that leads to an issue or the lung can receive blood flow but no oxygen, and that can be an issue. And it's helping to show the difference between um, not only our ability to ventilate the lung, but our ability to actually respirate with those tissues. And it helps to point us towards different uh, disease progressions or developmental progressions there. Really interesting subject. I highly encourage you to look that up and to do a little bit more study about VQ mismatch and what that might look like inside of the hospital as well. Another subject that comes up with pulmonary trauma that we did not cover in this module, just because of how big of a topic that it might be, is dealing with um, injuries secondary to gas exchange and um, gas expansion as a result of like scuba diving type injuries. It's a bigger topic and it has to do with overexpansion of the lungs. There's another type of injury process that um, maybe we'll get to in another type of an episode, but specifically having to deal with blast injuries from explosions that cause a blast injury inside of the lung that causes intrapulmonary hemorrhage and um, is absolutely critically life-threatening to a patient. And if there has been some sort of a major explosion in the area, can be a sign of how uh, this patient might progress from this point on. But uh, Thank you all for listening. Thank you so much. And I hope everybody has a safe shift. Hello, everyone. For April's post, I would like to continue with the health and wellness segment and talk about something that is very near and dear to my heart personally, as well as many of the people on the planet. And I would like to talk a little bit about caffeine. It is the life source of all EMS and fire personnel, and it's what pushes us through our 12 to 24 to 48 hour shifts. Little disclaimer, I'm definitely drinking a cup of coffee as I'm recording this, so let's do a warm up, let's take a sip and discuss what's gonna happen to us. A little history about our favorite drink. It is said that for the first discovery was in 2437 BC. A Chinese emperor named Shang Nun found that when certain leaves blew into his boiling water, it made a scent he enjoyed, and when he drank it, he felt invigorated. That was the first known history of tea. Now fast forward to the 9th century, a goat herder by the name of Kaldi discovered that his goats wouldn't sleep after eating berries off a specific plant. Out of curiosity, he made up a drink from those berries that made him much more alert when he would pray and coffee was born. Later on, these berries were cultivated and sent to Arabia in the Middle East, where later in the history of social aspect, 
the coffee house was born. According to the Ottoman history, the first coffee houses appeared in places such as Mecca and Istanbul. They were built as a place where people would gather over a cup of coffee and converse, tell stories, discuss politics, and play games such as chess and backgammon. They began to be known as schools of wisdom. Plants evolved to produce caffeine due to the pesticide abilities. When a bug eats a plant containing caffeine, the caffeine stimulates the bug's metabolic system, causing it to go crazy. Systems such as their circulatory system will begin to pump irregularly and eventually lead to cardiac arrest. Nature is unforgiving to these insects in this case, but what about humans? Could this happen to us? Why do we feel the way we feel when we drink coffee? First, let's start off of what caffeine really is. Caffeine is the world's most widely consumed psychoactive drug. It is a central nervous system stimulant of the methanxanthine class. The methanxanthine class is a drug derived from the purine-based xanthine. It is produced naturally by plants. Most commonly and most well-known source of caffeine is the coffee plant. It can be concentrated into a powder for things such as caffeine pills, diet pills, and energy drinks. It has a, a similar chemical structure as the neurochemical adenosine that we naturally produce. Adenosine is the neurochemical that is responsible for making us feel sleepy and tired. It bands with certain adenosine receptors in the brain, specifically the A2A receptor. Now caffeine is structured similar to adenosine, so when we drink that energy drink or coffee, the caffeine molecule bonds with those adenosine receptors in the brain, blocking out the actual adenosine molecule, leaving it unabsorbed. Now the caffeine mo molecule that just took place of the adenosine, although similar structured, cannot activate that receptor. It only blocks out the adenosine from it. So that receptor cannot activate and make us sleepy, hence the effect that keeping us awake. Caffeine also stimulates the adrenal glands, which are responsible for producing hormones such as adrenaline and cortisol. They get released into the bloodstream and that what gives us that jolt of energy. The effect of caffeine only lasts two to eight hours depending on the person. And when that caffeine wears off and we have all that excess adenosine build up, the adenosine will bind to those now open A2A receptors and we feel that caffeine crash. A little fun fact, humans that actually consume caffeine on a regular basis, their brains will actually produce more adenosine receptors, hence the consumer will need to drink more than that one cup of coffee to get the same effect. This is where we develop that caffeine tolerance. This is where things can start to turn harmful. The most obvious one is called the sleep sandwich. This is a cycle of waking up groggy and not well rested. Then we drink caffeine to help us get us through that day, and that caffeine then disrupts our next sleep cycle, causing us to wake, wake up feeling groggy and not well rested again. And this repeats itself over and over. Studies show that if you stop consuming caffeine around six hours before you plan on sleeping, the effects would have worn off long enough not to disturb your sleep cycle. So things like agitation and headaches can be linked to the sleep cycle interruption and withdrawal.
Headache being the most common withdrawal symptom. Other things can increase pulse, palpitations, and high blood pressure. The vasoconstriction can be as high as 27%. A regular coffee consumer brain will get used to that constricted blood vessel, and when all the effects of caffeine wear off, the blood vessels dilate back to normal that can increase blood flow to the brain, hence causing the headache. A human can overdose on caffeine, but the lethal dose of caffeine is around 10 grams. That's equivalent to around 100 cups of coffee, all consumed in a very short period of time. That seems pretty difficult to do, and it is, but when you change the source, that's when intake levels can begin to jump up. I'm talking about the concentrated caffeine in energy pills and energy drinks. The caffeine levels are normally four to five times higher than in the normal amount of coffee in one serving. The FDA recommends that you shouldn't consume more than around 400 milligrams of caffeine in one day. And if you decide to get that cup of decaf coffee, nothing truly is decaf. Studies show that in one cup of decaf coffee, there's anywhere from 10 to 20 milligrams of caffeine. Now with all that scary stuff done, let's talk about some of the benefits of caffeine. It turns out that there is a lot that caffeine can do for us. It boosts your metabolism around three to 7%. Add that to the additional energy that we get, making us more active and more likely to burn more calories. Along with making us feel more focused, it may protect you from diseases such as Alzheimer's and dementia by blocking the inflammation in the brain. Researchers from University of Illinois say that even in seniors that already are suffering from Alzheimer's, daily consumption of coffee will delay the disease. Also, lowers the risk of developing type 2 diabetes. In 2014, researchers at Harvard tracked 100,000 people and studies published say people who drank one cup of coffee a day had an 11% decreased chance of developing type 2 diabetes. And the people who, who decreased their consumption of coffee increased the risk by 17%. And this next benefit is my personal favorite. Coffee fights depression. Harvard published a study back in 2011 that women who drank around four cups of coffee a day had a 20% lower risk of becoming depressed. An article published by PubMed about a 10-year study found individuals who consumed four cups of coffee a day were 53% less likely to die of suicide. There is also a stigma that coffee dehydrates you. This is true to a point. Caffeine does have a mild diuretic effect, but depending on how you are consuming it, which is normally added to water, milk, or some other mixture, adding to our volume of water ingested. So it does not appear to increase our risk of dehydration. I hope this sheds some light on, on caffeine consumption for you. In summary, caffeine is a great stimulant that can help us power through those long shifts, study sessions, or long drives. If we monitor our consumption and keep our intake under the 400 milligrams recommended by the FTA, this can be a useful tool for us. Plus, it just tastes so good. So thank you for listening, and have a good day. For this month's Spotlight Medication, 
we chose to focus on non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, such as aspirin, ibuprofen, and naproxen, to name a few, and compare those to Tylenol, which is not a NSAID, but is also used as an over-the-counter analgesic. All of these medications also fall underneath the category of what are known as antipyretic drugs, or things that help to reduce fever. The origins of antipyretic drugs aren't really clearly known, but there is a lot of evidence all the way back to 1500 BC written on papyrus scrolls uh, in the ancient Egyptian world where uh, ancient healers were using willow leaves and using them to treat various inflammatory disorders. In one particular scribing on this papyrus was written, when a wound is inflamed, there is a concentration of heat. The lips of that wound are reddened and the man is hot in consequence. Then you must make cooling substances for them to draw the heat out. And it suggests the leaves of the willow. And this is even further perpetuated in the ancient philosopher and kind of the, perhaps the father of the study of medicine, Hippocrates, and definitely influenced by this work, also recommended the extracts of the willow bark to alleviate pain, specifically having to do with fever and childbirth and things like that. I mean, this has been a subject that's been studied for a long period of time, and one of the first substrates that had kind of come out of this was this whole like study of pulverized willow bark and the bark of some trees. People ended up formulating a piece of what is now known as aspirin or acetosalicylic acid. Um, the first initial substrate that they found was this salicylic alcohol, which then um, after further manipulation turns into this salicylic acid. And overall, as they started administering this to patients um, who had various reasons for pain or fever um, or inflammation, they noticed that patients were having this reduction in their fever. They also noticed that specifically with like aspirin, uh, later on with the administration of other true non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, um, these medications ended up causing an increase in bleeding and an increase in specifically GI upset, um, nausea, vomiting, and those sorts of things were an early known side effect of administering aspirin, ibuprofen, things like that to patients. But the goal has always been the same, to reduce a patient's suffrage, maybe improve their ability to care for themselves, reducing the fever, um, reducing the inflammation of their joints that might be affecting them from being able to care for themselves or perform the daily tasks that would lead to other comorbid factors. And the, the uh, goal to reduce pain has always been a driving factor in pharmaceutical research for a long period of time. So in steps these drugs, these non-steroidal anti-inflammatories or other analgesics, things that we use to reduce pain that are not an opioid, that don't have the same effect of euphoria. They do have side effects on their own, but they're not the same as um, analgesics of the era and of the day. Not to mention that with further 
development and with further structuring these medications and turning them into you know, very pure um, forms, this could eventually become an over-the-counter reliable source that physicians and even patients with first aid knowledge could use uh, on their own behalf to help to reduce their own symptoms and to help to improve their daily life, even with you know, suffering from the effects of old age, things like arthritis or other things that would cause pain secondary to inflammation. So we thought this would be kind of an interesting topic to discuss about these over-the-counter medications and to discuss a little bit more about how they work and how some of those medications have specific side effects and what those side effects might look like here for EMS. So to start, let's look at non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, also known as NSAIDs. A non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug account for some of the most prescribed medications for treating things that, like we've said, have to do with pain, fever, uh, chronic aches and pains, stiffness in the joints, and things like that. And they're not just pain relievers. They're mainly focused on reducing inflammation and inflammation leads to those episodes of pain and stiffness and the inability to move joints through their range of motion or even helps with the healing process after some sort of a traumatic injury. And then also, as we've said here, they help to reduce fevers by helping to lower the body's uh, almost set temperature, if you will, by affecting the hypothalamus. So in comes the person with flu-like symptoms who has aches and pains in their joints and they just don't feel very good. And now on top of that, they have this fever that's further dehydrating them and uh, affecting their, kind of sapping their strength. And we give them a medication that makes it easier for them to go and walk to the kitchen or take a shower or care for themselves, use the restroom. Um, a medication that makes it less painful to swallow, maybe if they have like a sore throat, um, makes it easier for them to perform those daily tasks. And on top of that, they burn less sugar. Their overall temperature is lower, so they feel more comfortable. They feel like they're getting a little bit more back to normal. And as their body runs the course of that infection, they're able to cope with those symptoms so much more. And there's a tremendous amount of therapy and medicine in using these types of drugs and prescribing these types of drugs for all kinds of aches and pains and discomforts and disease processes out there. And so when you look at like overall protocols on how a doctor or how a physician works towards helping a patient deal with their symptoms, I mean, we go to the, to the, the doctor mainly to deal with things that have cropped up hey, it's my joints are stiff or I'm having problems with, you know, arthritis type pain. Um, hey, I have a sore throat today or my child has a fever. We seek out aid in to treat those symptoms. And therefore, like in the forefront of medical treatment now steps these non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, things that are meant to help a patient deal with their symptoms while their body is progressing through this disease process. So it shouldn't really be a big stretch of the mind to say, you open up any uh, medicine cabinet, you get into anybody's prescription medications, and you're probably going to find at some point that the use of these over-the-counter drugs 
that's absolutely prevalent in their lifespan. And they've probably taken it at some point or they probably have a stash of these things inside of their house. They're probably using some of these medications. And where this really starts to affect EMS is we should start asking the patient, hey, we checked your temperature here, but the things that you're describing here sound like you might have had a fever here lately. Are you taking anything that might be reducing your fever? Are you taking over-the-counter medications like ibuprofen, like Tylenol, like aspirin? Understanding Tylenol really isn't an NSAID, but it definitely works as a fever reducer, as an antipyretic. We add that into our questioning with this patient. They might still be sick. They might still have an underlying fever that's being tamped down by one of these medications. And I've also met patients that do not think that over-the-counter medications are meds that need to be reported to EMS when we ask our sample history question, hey, are you taking any medications here lately? Some people incorporate that, but a lot of people don't because they figure that, hey, if I can buy it from Walmart, if I can buy it from the pharmacy, if it's something that is a non-prescription medication, an OTC, an over-the-counter medication, they don't account for that in their medical history. And yet, it can impact their physiologic performance, and it can impact um, whether or not that patient is going to develop a disease process or might be hiding some of those underlying symptoms that we would be looking for. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, uh, some common names of them, aspirin, ibuprofen, naproxen or naproxen, which is also known as Aleve. Ibuprofen is also known as Motrin or Advil or Motrin IB. There's, you know, uh, multiple products as far as aspirin is concerned, Bare aspirin being one of those uh, medications that are out there. There's enteric-coated medications, there's non-enteric-coated medications, meaning does it have a layer on the outside of it that is supposed to delay its release inside of the body. Um, and what's really interesting is, is, you know, if I look at the back of an Advil bottle and I look at the back of the, you know, generic bottle for ibuprofen, these two medications are the same. Advil is a brand name, but the overall medication that's working underneath that is ibuprofen, right? When you look at a medication like Excedrin, the headache medicine, right? Excedrin's active ingredients are Tylenol, aspirin, and caffeine. It's a combination of medications there that provide pain relief. It also helps to provide a common relief for what is a pretty common known headache cause, which is withdrawal from caffeine. So they provide some caffeine there um, to help kind of curb that and maybe also help to reduce your uh, headache. But like Excedrin, that combines two different antipyretic medications uh, in a single tableted form. Um, some of those medications last for a short period of time, like ibuprofen and Tylenol. You can take the pills every six hours, but their true window of activity starts to dip after three to four hours. And by the time that six hour part kind of rolls around, they're really not therapeutic on that medication anymore. Versus something like naproxen, which can last for 12 to 24 hours, gives people options for pain relief and fever control over a period of time. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatories work by preventing an enzyme uh, from doing its job. The enzyme is called cyclooxygenase, 
or COX, COX, and has two forms. COX-1, which protects the stomach lining from harsh acids and digestive uh, enzymes. It also helps maintain kidney function. COX-2 is produced when joints are injured or inflamed. And now, typically, NSAIDs block both actions of uh, both COX-1 and COX-2, which is why they help by reducing ease of pain and ease of inflammation. But it also affects the stomach, and it also affects the kidneys and has side effects associated with that. Now, there's one specific medication that is known as a COX-2 inhibitor that's pretty common out there for use with joint inflammation and arthritic pain, and that's celecoxib or Celebrex, which is a specific COX-2 enzyme inhibitor, and it helps to decrease that inflammatory response by tamping down that specific reaction. But it doesn't have the same reaction on the the stomach because it does not affect COX-1, whereas things like ibuprofen, aspirin, and naproxen, they all affect the stomach lining and have those traditional side effects of developing GI ulcers or GI bleeds, or you should always take those medications with food to help to protect that stomach lining from getting eroded or developing ulcers in that way. Now, this all differs from Tylenol. Now, Tylenol is known as acetaminophen, and acetaminophen is not considered a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. And it's a pretty common medication that you'll find. Sometimes it's standalone, sometimes it's mixed with other things, um, like Vicodin, for instance, is a combination of an opioid and acetaminophen. What's really interesting about Tylenol is, is that scientists still debate, uh, really, honestly, like the mechanism of action by how Tylenol works, um, or how acetaminophen works. And overall, Uh, They don't think that acetaminophen works at the site of inflammation. It doesn't work where you're having the pain, but instead it acts on the central nervous system, inhibiting the synthesis of the prostaglandins that are causing the fever or the pain and the inflammation, kind of like the messengers or the signals that are produced to tell the body to have pain there, to have inflammation in wherever area might be injured or swollen or that might be angry. And that uh, it does that by inhibiting both Cox enzymes, but it does it in a way that does not impact the GI system. So whereas ibuprofen or the naproxen are working in a way that would cause ulcers or cause GI upset, Tylenol will work in a way that does not cause those same uh, GI upsets or problems. However, Tylenol does affect the liver Um, negatively because it's metabolized in the liver and it's converted into its inactive compounds. There is one with one of those compounds, there is this alkylating metabolite that's produced um, and it's detoxified by natural processes in the body before it's excreted through the kidneys. It's because of this reaction that Tylenol overdoses specifically affect the liver because the liver is attempting to metabolize the acetaminophen back down into its products. And too much acetaminophen can overwhelm the liver in the way that it normally functions. And if the liver is already damaged because of like an infection, like cirrhosis, hardening of the liver, alcohol abuse, or other illnesses that are affecting the liver, a person may be much more susceptible to damage and overall having a negative reaction to this. 
For this reason, people with liver and illnesses who uh, chronically consume large amounts of alcohol, um, uh, they should all be really careful about taking uh, acetaminophen. It's recommended that adults not take more than 3,000 milligrams of acetaminophen in a single day. Um, and you should take even less than that if you're over the ages of 65. Especially taking a dose more than 7,000 milligrams over the course cumulatively over the day, it can lead to severe problems with the liver and with the kidneys. Because Tylenol is mixed into other types of medications, it's very important to recognize that when a patient is taking a combination medication, like Vicodin, for instance, and somebody takes too much Vicodin, or somebody takes Tylenol and Vicodin together, they're actually receiving more Tylenol than what they may already be thinking that they're taking on a daily basis. And it's because of this uh, reason that we have to be careful about administering over-the-counter medications to patients in the field. Remembering that things like ibuprofen, things like naproxen, they can affect kidney function. Another IV medication that is used in the hospital and on some EMS units is the medication Toradol which is another non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug and does a very good job of reducing a patient's pain in a non-narcotic way. However, one of the most critical things that we need to know before giving a patient Toradol is what do their kidney function actually look like? We need to know what is their uh, risk of having stomach bleeding or um, ulcers or things like that. You know, it may be a great choice to reach for for a patient who has normal kidney function, but they have to be able to excrete that medication, which means that they're probably going to end up having some additional IV fluid. They have to be able to urinate on a regular basis to be able to pass these metabolites off from this medication because we don't want to give somebody a med and give them additional problems um, in the future. So, it's one of those considerations that, you know, just by having Toradol in your ambulance or having Toradol as an option, we still have to concern ourselves with what, how, what else could happen if we give that patient uh, Toradol or a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. If they were to go to their medicine cabinet and take those medications before going to the hospital and having their blood drawn to figure out what do... Um, their metabolites look like? What is their liver panel look like? If we're talking about Tylenol, um, what does that patient's kidney function look like from the point of being able to excrete medications? Typically, NSAID overdoses can be relatively benign when we're talking about uh, patients that um, specifically NSAIDs that are not aspirin or um, an overdose that is Tylenol in origin. Um, typically, you know, patients that have some sort of an overdose on ibuprofen um, or things like that might have some headache, drowsiness, maybe some blurred vision or some dizziness. Um, so on rare occasions, more on the seizure side. Aspirin overdoses start with ringing in the ears and impaired uh, hearing. A patient can have some uh, rapid breathing, hyperventilation, uh, later on, uh, maybe within the three to eight hour range, vomiting, dehydration, fever, double vision, and feeling faint. Um, and the 
hyperventilation occurs as a result of a pH change inside of the patient's body. Remember that um, aspirin is acetosalicylic acid, and this causes an acidotic shift inside of the body. And one of the body's major ways of controlling that is going to be by breathing more rapidly. So these are going to be deep, laborious sorts of uh, breathing patterns, also known as Kussmaul respirations. And that's in an effort to change the patient's own pH. Um, some serious dehydration can also occur uh, because of all of this. A patient can have low blood pressure, rapid heart rate, um, hallucinations. Um, and overall, this is a really serious medical condition that needs to be treated rapidly. Treatments for an aspirin overdose may include dialysis. It may include um, stabilization care as well as the use of activated charcoal and monitoring that patient's progression over a period of time. In the case of an acetaminophen or a Tylenol overdose, um, treatment needs to be given within the first eight hours after ingesting the Tylenol. Uh, the patient needs to be monitored for liver failure and for uh, to support the liver. A specific antidote does exist. Um, the medication is known as mucamist and is given via IV that helps to eliminate acetaminophen from the patient's body. So acute poisoning of acetaminophen uh, usually presents itself in four clinical phases. Stage one occurs between zero to 24 hours and is manifested by nausea, anorexia, vomiting, and diaphoresis. And it's really important to note that Tylenol is one of the drugs where the patient is going to appear normal with no signs and symptoms for that first 24-hour phase despite the ingestion of a toxic or even lethal dose. And you know, patients who present with this potential overdose of really any sort, they need to be seen at a hospital. They need to have that Tylenol level drawn, that acetaminophen level drawn, and they need to look out if there's any other cotoxins that were taken with the acetaminophen. For example, someone attempting to commit suicide by taking Tylenol PM. The acetaminophen is absolutely gonna be dangerous, but it's gonna take some time for that to set in. If the other active ingredient, however, and that was diphenhydramine, they might show up uh, with having a little bit more of like the anticholinergic toxidrome before the Tylenol even has a chance to start to react. So cotoxicity like alcohol or other things like that that may potentiate this also need to be addressed too. Stage two of this acetaminophen overdose occurs between 24 and 72 hours and is characterized by right upper quadrant pain and there may be deterioration of renal function at this particular phase. Stage three happens between 72 and 96 hours and is characterized by central lobular hepatocellular necrosis. So this is going to be liver death um, and it includes hepatic encephalopathy which is the decline in brain function that occurs as a result of severe liver disease. In this condition, your liver can't adequately remove toxins from your blood like ammonia and causes a buildup of these toxins in your bloodstream, which leads to brain damage and death. After a few days, as the liver starts to shut down, the patient's ammonia levels will build in their body. And 
a acute change in their mental status may be indicative of these building ammonia levels. A sudden change in the patient's uh, GCS score or the patient's mental status or the development of ticking within their muscle groups may be a critical sign that ammonia levels have reached an unacceptable level in the brain. Although this jerkiness of a patient's hands and arms specifically is not usually seen in the acute poisoning process, uh, within one to two days after having this buildup of ammonia on the brain, the patient can have this exhibition of symptoms known as asterixis or liver flap. Um, and it can accompany a galaxy of neurological and non-neurological situations. But in the presence of a Tylenol overdose, of this acetaminophen toxicity that leads to acute liver failure can be a sign that the patient's ammonia levels have reached an intolerable level on the brain. And this looks like the extension muscles are fighting against the motor cortex to try to control the patient's uh, motions of their hands and their arms. And they get this sort of flapping presentation of their hands and their arms. They can end up having a bleeding disorder with this, hypoglycemia, and this is where subsequent death um, may set in secondary to liver failure. You know, the liver is so important with straining out and changing very toxic metabolites inside of the body that without its function, we end up in a very severe situation. Stage four begins four days to two weeks after the ingestion, during which complete resolution of the hepatic dysfunction may occur if the damage in phase three is not you know, reversed. Um, and overall, Tylenol toxicity is important because early symptoms are subtle and the onset of the liver damage, it may not be immediately apparent. And after 24 hours, a patient may not be complaining of any sort of symptoms or maybe their cotoxins like the alcohol have resolved and the patient no longer is feeling suicidal or having any other issues, but the major manifestations have not occurred because they may occur several days after the ingestion. And it, that may be when EMS gets called. Maybe the patient had a suicide attempt days before and now they're exhibiting this sudden change in mental status. Um, they're exhibiting upper right-hand quadrant pain, and it comes out in the history taking that the patient actually attempted to take too much Tylenol a few days before, and just now we're starting to see that liver toxicity. The real key here with Tylenol overdoses is that we have to know about it. We have to address it early. The patient has to get... Um, this uh, supportive treatment as much as possible. And almost always, this is going to be a long-term treatment thing uh, being governed by the hospital and lots of experts that have to deal with critical vital function. So um, we have to identify this stuff early and get that patient to a hospital for supportive care in order to maintain their liver function over a long period of time. I hope this gives you some idea of the complexity of over-the-counter medications like ibuprofen, Tylenol, naproxen, um, how in a patient's medicine cabinet they may be thinking, I'm just going to take something here to try to deal with my symptoms, and they may end up potentiating some of their own 
uh, medical problems, or if we do end up running on a patient who doesn't quite know the difference of these medications or their side effects, we also might be able to better understand their own disease progression and how they've been using them uh, at home um, on a daily basis. Thanks for listening to the Falk Salem podcast. We welcome any feedback you may have, or if you have suggestions for future content, please send an email to nicholas, that's N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S, dot vaneps, V-A-N-E-P-P-S, at falk.com. Thank you for all your hard work and have a safe shift.